So I looked at the subject line. I thought, oh, there's no way this is going to be interesting. Short-term rental of homes is something that I see as really a long-standing and well-established property right. You can drive around any coastal town here in Maine and look at some of the beach cottages and you know maybe one out of five has a little orange sign stapled to the side of the building that says for rent on it. If you're gonna start to take that away from people or constrain it in some way, that's gonna require some pretty strong justification. However, the other thing we should think about as libertarians is that one of the problems that we're hearing about is the problem of nuisances. My caution to libertarians is while we do want to support the property rights of the owners who are trying to use their property um, in, in a different way, I think we also need to be really careful about defending and honoring the property rights of their neighbors to what you'd call the quiet enjoyment of their own property. And I think as libertarians, we've probably thought about this problem probably more than anybody else. In their defense, I'm sure that they assume that the, the town councilors are doing something about it. And I think they think that they have done something about it. And the reality is that it, this isn't going to do anything. This isn't going to stop the, the nuisance properties. Like a, that seven bedroom house could sell have 14 people on the property. They can go make all the noise they want. The town is no, they, what are they going to cite them for? They've already tried to give them a noise violation. They can't because they can't take a baseline reading on the decibel level. But at the end of the day, it's like, oh, the town's done something now but they haven't solved the problem. They haven't even addressed the fundamental problem. That house with seven bedrooms, they can still have 20 cars parked there. There's nothing in there to stop them from having 20 cars parked in their front lawn. There's nothing to stop them from having 14 people there. There's nothing to stop them from having a party out front. I mean, or having a party every weekend. Like none of this changes any of that. But what it does do is it takes the small units and it makes it really burdensome for the people who actually are using this to supplement their income, who actually are using this to be able to afford their home what they do in this case is they kind of give up on regulating the noise thing but what they end up doing is they say well we can't really effectively regulate that we can't regulate the cause so we're going to regulate this proximate cause instead you know the thing that causes the cause which in their mind airbnbs are one of them because they have these high standards of evidence where they can't actually enforce the thing you know they end up creating this dragnet that ropes in all these innocent people. Right, it's significantly lowering standards of evidence for everybody else, you know, under this regulation. Yeah. It's the opposite of being presumed innocent until proven guilty. Right. It's your presumed guilty, the end. I think you have a really unique and important podcast. Welcome to Anarchitecture, episode 33. Back in November of 2019, I had my second appearance on The Tom Woods Show. I now consider myself to be a recurring guest. I wasn't invited back. Yeah, Joe didn't just invite himself onto the show like I did. I had reached out to Tom because we had just put out our episode about short-term rentals. And the day we released the episode, which was on Halloween, October 31st, there was a shooting at a party at an Airbnb house in Orinda, California, which got some media attention. So the fact that we had just issued a podcast episode where the cover art was a movie poster from Psycho, I thought it came across as a little insensitive, even though we put it out a few hours before this event happened. So I took the time to write a blog post about the event, about what happened, and about where we thought the responsibility lied for what happened at the event. 
This was a party of about 100 people where some people started shooting at each other and five people were killed. So we don't often talk about current events, but this seemed like the right time to have this kind of conversation on a show like Tom's. And Tom had never really done an episode about Airbnb and and short-term rentals before. He had a few episodes where it came up as kind of a subtopic. So I reached out to him about it and we got it set up. We covered some of the same ground that we covered in our last episode about short-term rentals. However, since I was going to be speaking to a larger audience here, I actually did quite a bit more research on some of the housing studies that we mentioned in our last episode. I did some more research on how short-term rentals are being regulated in different cities in the U.S. and abroad. So there is some new information here, and it's all presented in a much more condensed format than our our two-hour episode that we did last time around on it. But the reason I want to present this now as part of our podcast is that my town has actually now gone through a whole short-term rental legislation process that I got myself pretty heavily involved in, as you can imagine. And so I want to talk a little bit about what that process was like and some lessons I learned from it, both about the political processes in a small town like mine, as well as some broader observations about libertarianism in general and what kind of arguments are viable and what arguments just fall flat on their face. The whole experience was kind of eye-opening for me. So I think it's worthwhile to reflect a little bit on the way it went. So stay tuned through the episode. Joe and I will get back on at the end and talk a little more about all of this. But first, here's... The Tom Woods Show, episode 1542. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. We're going to be talking today about state regulation of a service I like very much and uh, how we ought to think about it and what can be done about it. All right, let's talk now to Tim Brochu, who is a co-host of the Anarchitecture podcast. I had him on some time ago with his brother, who co-hosts it with him. And I want to talk today actually about Airbnb and what's been going on and what some of the complaints are about Airbnb and are there ways to resolve these kinds of complaints, some of which are legitimate, that don't involve the state. State always screws it up and everybody's unhappy. Are there ways to resolve these problems that don't involve the state? Uh, Because I think Airbnb is a really, really terrific service. It's the kind of thing that would exist on a free market, would exist in the absence of a state where people would just figure out ways to solve their problems and to provide services for each other. And like other such services, it's come under a lot of scrutiny from the state. So we're going to try and get to the bottom of that today. Tim, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with you. This email you sent me did get me interested. At first, I looked at the subject line. I thought, oh, there's no way this is going to be interesting. But oh, is it? It actually, there's a lot involved in this, uh, in this issue. So you were talking about, well, first of all, you're an Airbnb so-called super host. So maybe you'll be able to explain what all that means. But apparently there was a shooting at an Airbnb rental in California. And there are some complications resulting from this. And you wrote a blog post talking about who should be held responsible. Is it the is it the shooter, the guest, the homeowner, the city, Airbnb? How do you apportion responsibility? Things like that. And then Airbnb is making changes to its platform. And Airbnb has been doing that already for other reasons, uh, having to do with housing discrimination and stuff like that. So there's a lot going on here. And also, 
I mean, there's a lot to talk about with Airbnb because I was looking in New York uh, last year. I was thinking of getting an apartment in New York because I spend so much time up there. I, I briefly considered having a place so that when, you know, if I take the kids up there, we always have a familiar set of surroundings for us. And it's hard actually to find the kind of high rise touristy area apartment building that I wanted that would allow for its use as an Airbnb, for instance. Uh, Because at first I thought about just getting an apartment. Then I thought about long-term rentals and stuff. But there are a lot of buildings where for their own reasons, the the residents don't want transients coming in and out. And I can sort of understand that. And that's a private property rights thing. But anyway, I'm getting, I'm sorry, I'm just talking about everything that occurs to me with Airbnb. Let me me turn it over to you. You give us an overview of the situation. Sure. I mean, the the situation you just described is is actually a really great reason for people to to have the ability to do short-term rentals because it gives people the opportunity to generate income in an asset, which could be an apartment in a city, could be a vacation home, that otherwise is just sitting empty, sitting vacant most of the time, except for when they want to use it. Um, And at the same time, as you said, if you own a unit like that, you're not going to rent it long term because you're trying to get some use out of it. And so there is really a, um, a strong reason for this type of service to exist in a lot of places. Of course, part of the problem that people see with that is when you start opening that door, that some people argue that that then starts to take housing units off the market for for long-term renters, and then that could potentially drive up housing prices. Um, And then, of course, there are a number of other concerns about these short-term rentals, that when you have people coming in on a transient basis, which is typically defined as less than 30 days at a time, Sometimes you can open the door to various kinds of nuisances. Um, some places turn into party houses, which is what happened at the South Set in California where the shooting was. And so there are a number of these issues that are circulating around short-term rentals that are now leading many towns to look at various forms of regulation, whether it's bans, whether it's requiring owner occupancy. There are a number of different, these local towns are kind of grasping at straws to just try to throw something at the wall and see what sticks to rein in what they see as potentially problematic use of their existing housing stock for short-term rental. All right, let's go through some of the points you've got here. Because what I want to know is, how do we sort all this out in terms of what libertarians ought to think, according Mm -hmm. to our own principles, about the short-term rental of your home? Because obviously the state wants to jump in and have a say about this, or at the very least regulate the terms on which Airbnb makes the service available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is that for one thing, short-term rental of homes is something that I see as really a long-standing and well-established property right. I live in, in Maine, in southern Maine, and you can drive around any coastal town here in Maine and look at some of the beach cottages and you know maybe one out of five has a little orange sign stapled to the side of the building that says for rent on it and it's got a phone number and it might have the dates that it's available over the summer so this has been going on for a long time especially in in, um, a vacation area like maine but even beyond that in the early early uh, 20th century you had a lot of places um, especially some bigger cities like new york and san francisco where you would have buildings that were renting out um, a single, what was called a single room occupancy, essentially like a boarding house. And these could be rented on a a long-term basis, on a short-term basis. And even people in their own homes um, outside of cities and outside of apartment buildings might take on a lodger from time to time, might take on somebody, again, on a short-term or long-term basis within their own home to help supplement uh, their own income 
and again, make take something that was, was an underutilized asset, an extra room in their house, and make that productive. So this is something that's been going on for a long time. And I view it as really a, a longstanding property right that if you're going to start to take that away from people or constrain it in some way, that's going to require some, some pretty strong justification. However, the other thing we should think about as libertarians is that one of the problems that we're hearing about, and this is really the biggest problem I've heard about in my town, which is now looking at various forms of ways of regulating short-term rentals, is the problem of nuisances. Right, so, right, right. Because a lot of these people, as with anything, like if you're, if you're in a rental car, some people drive it more recklessly, which they shouldn't. <laughs> or at the very least, you don't, you don't get an oil change in a rental car. You don't get the rental car detailed. Right. And likewise, the, the thinking is people maybe won't take as good care of it. Or since they don't have to cultivate long-term relationships with the neighbors, they'll be inconsiderate jerks. Right. I mean, and there is at least a, a presumption that this may be true, I think. And I think it is. And so that's, I guess, my caution to libertarians is, you know, while we do want to support the property rights of the owners who are trying to use their property um, in, in a different way, I think we also need to be really careful about defending and honoring the property rights of their neighbors to what you'd call the quiet enjoyment of their own property. And I think as libertarians, we've probably thought about this problem probably more than anybody else about what constitutes a nuisance between two separate properties and, and how we apply property rights to that and what types of regulations are are proportional and reasonable. And so I think that if anybody, if this is coming up in anybody's town and they're, they're trying to get involved in these discussions, you know, I'd say we should start by listening to the neighbors who are complaining, understanding, is this something that's legitimate? I know that in my town, there's this one property. Well, let me just to, to put this in perspective. I live in a small town, Southern Maine. I've found that there are about 90 or so short-term rental listings in my town. And of those 90, there are about three that we've heard of getting some significant complaints. They're all, all three of them are larger units. Um, one of them, I think, sleeps eight people, maybe five bedrooms. One of them is, uh, I think, maybe six bedrooms and sleeps, you know, 12 people. And one of them is another six or seven bedrooms sleeping 14 people. And one of these units is actually making itself available for weddings on their property, <laughs> And so this is like a, you know, an acre and a half lot in a, a residential kind of waterfront area. And they're hosting a wedding on their property, you know, on, on weekends throughout the summer. Um, so, you know, as, as much as I want to defend that guy's right to do what he wants with his property, I mean, I have some appreciation for the guy next door who doesn't want to be listening to, you know, earth, wind and fire until 11 o'clock at night from some band playing on the property next door. So, you know, I think that we need to be, um, I think we can come out on both sides of the issue and really try to to get to some kind of a balance between the rights of the property owners and the rights of, of their neighbors. Well, I have another question for you that doesn't hit directly on a libertarian concern, but it does hit on the kind of concern that, you know, let's say people are more or less uh, taught to have in the media, which is the claim that if short-term rentals are available, long-term housing becomes less affordable. Now, I, I have to admit, I don't immediately see what the connection between those two things is supposed to be. So maybe you can explain what that relationship is supposed to be and why, in fact, it does not hold. Sure. I mean, so there have been some studies on this. I've looked into a few of them. I'm no statistician, but I've tried to make sense out of a couple of the ones that I've found. For one thing, th there's one study that was done in Santa Monica, California, which has, I think, one of the strictest 
bans on Airbnbs in the country. I think that went into place around 2015 or so. Um, and so they looked at a couple of years of data from this ban and they compared it to other areas around it, other towns, you know, right around in that area to see if there was any difference in essentially the rental prices between Santa Monica, which had the ban and other areas which didn't have the ban. Um, and this study found that there was no significant impact on rental pricing from the ban. In other words, by banning Airbnb and short-term rentals, they weren't able to produce any improvements in, in rental pricing. There have been a number of other studies done that suggest that there is an impact on rental prices. One of them that's probably gotten some of the most press is in 2018, there was a study done in New York City where they looked at, there's a website called AirDNA, which essentially scrapes the Airbnb website and they pull together a whole bunch of data of where listings are, how much they're being rented for and for how long. And they did this kind of big data analysis on that. They looked at rental values from Zillow and somehow they sussed out of that uh, some number of units that they believe have been taken off of the market as permanent rental units. So in other words, you know, if there were 100,000 rental units before, they said that, well, now there are, the number they came up with was, I think, about 5,600 units that are now permanent short-term rentals that are no longer available on the long-term rental market. And now, to put this in perspective, in New York City, you know, they're saying that there were 5,600 units taken off the market. This is a city with 3.4 million housing units and about 2.1 million rental units. So it's, I mean, just at face value, it seems like a bit of a stretch to suggest that 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 5,600 units taken off the market is really going to make that much of an impact on rental prices. Um, but they did find a bit of an impact. What they found is that it's increased rents by about a half of a percent per year over the three years that they were looking at the study. Um, and this has been you know, trumpeted from the rafters as the smoking gun that shows that that Airbnb you know, increases housing prices in New York City, of all places, which has the most mature Airbnb market in the country, it has a long-term um, year-round rental market as opposed to places like where I live where it's seasonal. And this study was sponsored by the, you know, the, of course, the hotel union or lobby or whatever in New York City. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so they got the answer they want. But, but even that, it, I mean, it's such a small, it's a half of a percent per year. This is was like the best they could do to show that, that short-term rentals are increasing rental prices in the city. So I don't find that very convincing. Yeah, and... This is, first of all, only a curiosity anyway, because strictly speaking, it makes no difference. If this is the arrangement people prefer, then that, then you got to just let the chips fall where they may. If this is what people want to do, then let them do it. I mean, there, there are a lot of preferences people may have that wind up affecting prices one way or another. I mean, almost everything we do affects prices one way or another. And I don't see any reason to single out this particular decision over any other. Exactly. Well, well just to put this in perspective... Another study I read looking at this issue, this was, I think, in Los Angeles, um, there was this kind of throwaway line in this article where it said, it said, you know, the, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but it said, you know, these, these short-term rentals, you know, we shouldn't be letting them take these units off the market because don't they know that in Los Angeles, it takes three years to get a permit approved for a new housing unit and costs $315,000? And so they take that, the fact that, that the permitting process takes three years um, they take that as like a fact of nature and then look at, at short-term rentals, you know, people who are finding these various different ways to 
increase the productivity of their properties and their homes. Um, somehow that's the problem. But but the three years of permitting, that's just taken taken for granted. I mean, how could it be any other way? Let's get back to the issue of uh, disturbances and nuisance and so on and on. And whether or not this is Airbnb's responsibility or, I mean, obviously nobody at the company is playing music at 11 o'clock at night. But on the other hand, they are fashioning the contracts by with which these people come in and, and live in these places. So it is interesting to consider exactly what Airbnb's role would be. And is there a way we can solve this problem in the same way that, let's say, a lot of online solutions solve problems where you have a fraudulent seller on eBay, they have in-house ways of resolving that. Uh, same with PayPal. Mm-hmm. In fact, PayPal has really interesting ways where they can kind of detect something is fraudulent very, very early on, almost before you detect that it's fraudulent. <laughs> and they've come up with all these clever ways of handling situations like this. So is there something that can be done that does not involve local or state government? Well, so to answer, I think the first question about what is, you know, what responsibility does does Airbnb have? I mean, if you think about what Airbnb is, as I said before, vacation rentals have been around forever, and not just vacation rentals, but short-term rentals, you know, long-term rentals, or or let's say, you know, maybe a three-month or six-month lease. Uh, this this isn't like like they've reinvented the wheel here. What they've done is they've made the listing a listing service much more, much easier to use um, and much easier to manage things like uh, like the, the money exchange between people and the contractual arrangements um, and even having reviews so that you can review guests and guests can review hosts and everybody has, hopefully is, has some idea of who's going to be coming and staying at their place um, and then the renters have some idea of what they're going to be getting. But Airbnb, they've kind of gone beyond just like, let's say something like a Craigslist or like a classified ad in your newspaper, right? I mean, if somebody advertised their property for rent as a vacation rental, like in a classified ad in a newspaper, nobody would be looking at the newspaper and saying, you know, oh, there was a party at that house. You, Mr. Newspaper Man, are responsible for, you know, this disturbance that your rental unit caused. But people look at Airbnb and there's this perception that Airbnb has some kind of let's say, managerial responsibility over all of these properties that they're hosting. I don't think that's technically true. However, they're, you know, by the fact that they're, everything is happening under their terms of service that they've established, they do have a lot of control over how those relationships get managed and, and what happens um, on these properties. They've traditionally taken what I see as really kind of a hands-off approach to a lot of their listings. They've They've been willing to really just let uh, kind of put it out there as a listing service and see what happens with people, see if people want to come on and and list different places in different ways. They're now advertising even things like experiences that you can um, you can advertise on Airbnb. And so I think that they've taken on to some extent at least the ability to start to manage some of these things. And now with this shooting that just happened in California, it seems like this has been a big a big wake-up call for them. And I should say that there, there's some evidence that there have actually been other shootings previously at other Airbnb units that, for whatever reason, just haven't been nationally publicized. But this event seemed like a wake-up call for Airbnb. And just to, to explain what this was, there was a, an Airbnb rental. Um, somebody booked a place saying that it was a family reunion of 12 people. The host allowed it. The host had a rule, in his, a house rule in his listing that said there were no parties allowed. 
And this person put something out on Instagram saying that there was going to be a house party. Like they called it an Airbnb mansion party. A um, hundred people showed up. And then around 1030 at night, um, there was a shooting where five people were killed and other people were injured. Um, apparently, this is the, the sheriff in the county is now saying that this appears to have been gang related. In fact, two of the victims that they think might have actually been also two of the shooters. Um, this is all still being investigated, obviously. And even the, the person who rented the, the unit and advertised the party is apparently being charged now as an accessory to murder for this event. So it's, a, I mean, just an absolutely tragic event. But this seems to have really gotten the attention of Airbnb, uh, Airbnb Inc. And so their response to it is they've made three announcements about policy changes to their platforms. So the first is that they say they're going to verify all listings worldwide. So they have about 7 million listings worldwide. And they're going to do some, start doing some kind of inspection on all of these listings to make sure that, first of all, that they exist, <laughs> that they're not hoaxes, that they are clean, that they are safe. And so I'm not sure what the extent of that would be, but that seems like a pretty big effort on their part to get all their listings, have a, at least a higher kind of certification for, for what listings are on their site. Another thing they've announced is that they're going to ban party houses. So, for example, that house I mentioned in my town that's hosting weddings and, and booking people through Airbnb, I get the feeling that their days are numbered, at least on Airbnb's platform. And what they say is that Airbnb says they're going to be using artificial intelligence in some way to detect bookings that are likely to be a party house. So, for example, if somebody who lives in the same town books a unit in that town for one night and maybe they're a first time user of Airbnb, they're going to look at that as something that's suspicious and maybe flag that as something that looks like it could be somebody renting the place just to throw a party. Another thing they're doing is they're setting up a 24-7 neighbor hotline. And they're consulting with law enforcement on this to try to see how they can best respond to neighbor complaints. They've had kind of a, I don't know, it seems like a kind of a lackadaisical uh, neighbor, you know, complaint reporting service that doesn't seem, I haven't heard of anybody really, you know, getting any good, much use out of that, let's say. Um, but they're now setting up a 24-7 neighbor hotline, which it seems like they're going to be starting to take neighbor complaints a bit more seriously and possibly even responding to events as they're happening. So it'll be interesting to see how each of those three things pan out. Um, but for me, I mean, getting again back to the question of whether or not Airbnb has responsibility in this, it's like, again, technically, you know, they're a listing service. They don't own the properties. I don't really see them having a responsibility, but it boggles my mind that they've waited this long to start to address party houses, which in every city, it seems like in every city where these things are, these party houses seem like the big problem that is drawing attention and that is getting them banned, is getting them regulated. And, and they just lost a $4.2 million lawsuit in Jersey City, which is important because it, it has great access into New York City. And New York already has some pretty severe restrictions on Airbnb. So they just lost this whole battle there to fight off some bans and, and some restrictions that are going to really kill a lot of Airbnb business in Jersey City. So they've been fighting these things all over the country. And the fact that they haven't dealt with this party house situation until now is kind of boggling to me. <laughs> it seems like something that doesn't add value to their business and that, they, that they've been letting happen um, for a long time, really, for, for no good reason that's causing them all these problems. What's the trend in terms of what uh, you know, local authorities are 
trying to do with regard to Airbnb. Because, for instance, uh, with Uber, we've seen a, a bunch of localities uh, trying to ban it or place restrictions on it or regulate it one way or another. I don't know where that stands, if that's increasing or decreasing. And likewise for Airbnb, I don't know if that's increasing or decreasing or staying the same. What's your sense of it? What's happening in a lot of places, for one thing, this is all happening at the, at the local level. So individual towns are coming in and and trying to deal with with these issues in their town when they start getting complaints, mostly from neighbors who are, are you know, observing these nuisances. And there's a lot of things that they're kind of throwing at the wall to see what sticks on regulating these units. So for one thing, I mentioned Santa Monica. Um, there are other places who are coming up with outright bans on Airbnbs, um, on short-term rentals. Um, other places are requiring owner occupancy, which means that essentially I can live in my house and rent out one or two or three rooms to different people, but I couldn't just rent the whole house out to somebody else. So again, that's really, that's effectively a ban because you're taking, again, this longstanding use of, of let's say, a vacation home where you're going to rent that out to somebody on a weekend when you're not there. Some of these places are really taking that off the table. Um, and I, th- I think that's actually part of what Jersey City did in their, in their regulations. In New York City, and I think this actually might be statewide in New York, they have a policy that is one host, one home. So in other words, for each host on a rental site like Airbnb, you can only have one address that you're renting out. You can have multiple listings within that address. So let's say if you have a, a duplex or something, you could list both places on Airbnb, I think. <laughs> I might not have this quite right, but they're not, they don't want people to come in and be buying up you know, six different buildings in town and renting them all out on Airbnb. So that's something that's happening in New York City. I think San Francisco is also doing that. Other places are limiting the number of of days in the course of a year that somebody can rent out their unit on a short-term basis. Amsterdam has a 60-day maximum. London, I think, has a 90-day. Paris, I think, has 120 days. So in other words, you can't rent your your property out for more than 120 days in the year in Paris um, as a short-term rental. And then, of course, people are looking at, in some ways, looking at some existing regulations that they might have on the books and kind of reading into them some kind of existing ban on on short-term rentals. One of these, obviously, is zoning. There was a case near where I live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, that just has gone up through the courts where somebody was charged with, they got essentially a cease and desist order on their short-term rental um, because they were trying, they were just set up a, a second unit on their property um, as a short-term rental. Somebody complained about it. And what they said is that the zoning code, the zoning ordinance for their district was a single family residence district that did not allow transient occupancies. And so these things that were written into zoning codes, which never really anticipated anything like Airbnb, people are now going back and reading and saying, well, look, we have this thing that says no transient occupancy. That means that you can't do this because of the zoning code. Similarly, people are looking at building codes. And I will say that the building codes are are a mess on this issue. There are, first of all, there are multiple building codes usually in, in effect in various areas. One definition that that's getting called out a lot is from the NFPA Life Safety Code, which is the definition of a dwelling unit as housing one family plus up to three outsiders. So in other words, you could have you could have a family living in a unit and they could rent three separate rooms within their dwelling unit. 
and that could still be considered a one-family dwelling. If you rent to a fourth person or if you have some different configuration that doesn't meet their definition, then you have to look at a change of use to something like a lodging place or like a boarding house. There are different definitions in the code for things like that. But it's not well written into the codes, again, because I don't think they really anticipated this type of use very well. And so there's a lot of confusion there with code enforcement officials and fire chiefs in trying to wrap their heads around how they should be applying the building code to existing dwelling units. Um, and then, of course, lots of places have already have some kind of licensing in place for lodging. Often there are exceptions for things like single home you know, vacation rentals. Other places are looking at various forms of permitting requirements. Um, some places are just asking people to register their units. And in fact, Airbnb is cooperating with places to where they're actually, when somebody registers on Airbnb, um, I think this is happening like in New Orleans, they'll actually give the city of New Orleans the name and information and contact information about that listing. And then they register them with some kind of a number that they have to post on their listing. So it's really all over the place with the various kinds of ideas that people are, that, that regulators are coming up with to deal with this. And so it's a little hard to, it, if you're going to try to start to speak out against some of this stuff, I think for one thing, you want to know what the existing regulations are that are in place. See if there are any existing regulations like something like a, a lodging business license that already address the issue. And then, you know, as I said, talk to the neighbors and, and try to find a way to deal with things like nuisances, like really get to the, the source of the problem. Because a lot of these things I'm talking about don't affect the fundamental issue of, you know, what might be nuisances or possibly the, the housing question. So, again, it, it's just all happening at the local level. So there are opportunities for people to get involved really personally in their town. Um, and it could be a, if anybody really wants to start to promote libertarian ideas, it's a good way to get into some discussions about things like nuisances and, and property rights and the homeowner's rights to, to rent their own property. Right. So in other words, let's wrap up with what would you recommend to people? But what is the best way for libertarians to stand up against these kinds of bans and make a case for short-term rental rights? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, I've said a couple of things, which I'll reiterate, which is for one thing, listen to the neighbors that are complaining um, and respect those complaints and see if you can find a way to resolve that with, with this usually a handful of problematic properties um, in any given area. I would say draw a difference between party houses and the majority of rental units, which are not disruptive. See if you can quantify that in your town. Find out how many places are actually getting complaints. If you go on um, sites like airdna.com, you can find out how many total listings there are in your town. And you can start to at least put some numbers to some of these discussions. As I said, knowing the existing laws, uh, licensing requirements, building code requirements, land use ordinances, there may be things already in place that can start to address these issues that are just not being enforced. And ultimately, I think just getting involved in some of these discussions in your town um, as I said, this is all happening at the local level and nobody really knows what to do. Everybody kind of has their heads spinning. So if we can go in there with some principled um, approaches to dealing with the fundamental problems, I think that we can add something meaningful to that conversation. And then for me, I'm actually trying to propose doing something that doesn't involve the, the city or the state, which is to set up a what I'm calling a home rental mediation service. Um, and my idea here is that I would set up a website where neighbors could complain. They would they would file complaints anonymously on the website. I would record that. I would then reach out to the homeowners uh, with these complaints and engage them and ask talk to them about any issues they may actually you know any existing regulations they may be in violation of. 
um, and talk with them about what some of the issues are and see if we can get them to propose some solutions, then go back to the neighbors and see if we can, you know, work back and forth between what the neighbors are looking for for some kind of resolution and what the homeowner is willing to offer up on their end and see if we can come up with some way that we can get these things sorted out and, and keep everybody happy without even involving the state. Because one problem you have in a lot of these places, even if you can come up with some kind of a nuisance ordinance that is enforceable, things like noise violations are really hard to enforce because it's often, it's not just about like the decibel level at the property line, which is how a lot of noise ordinances are written. These kind of disturbances are, they're subjective, they're difficult to document, they're difficult to, to quantify. And so I think that there needs to be some other way for people to be talking to each other and sorting out these conflicts rather than relying on the police who ultimately don't have a leg to stand on oftentimes in enforcing some of these nuisance complaints. All right. Uh, we're going to leave it there, but can you take uh, just a minute to tell us about the An Architecture podcast and give us the website? Sure. Yeah. An Architecture podcast is a podcast I host with my, my twin brother, Joe. We talk about libertarian approaches to thinking about the built environment, which is talking about cities and, and infrastructure and architecture and the way that the whole world gets built around us. Um, obviously, there, there have been a lot of things over time, a lot of government regulations that have really twisted the way that the built environment has been developed. And so we're looking at a lot of those issues um, and again, trying to come up with ways that we can apply libertarian principles, both to how the world gets developed as it is now, and then really see if we could push those ideas to ideas like privatization of infrastructure and finding ways to get a greater degree of freedom in the way that people use their properties. I had you guys on quite a while ago. We talked about a bunch of these issues, but it seems like it's been so long. So if you've got more stuff that we could discuss, I'd be glad to revisit this because a lot of the issues you deal with are tricky for average libertarians. And I don't mean like low IQ libertarians, just the you know traditional libertarian who doesn't spend all his time thinking about these things. Hard for them to, to grasp as to how we would handle them. So uh, I think you have a really unique and important podcast. Well, thanks. Yeah. And that, that's something that, that we saw uh, as, as something that we could speak to uniquely. You know, I'm an architect. Um, Joe is an engineer. And so we thought that we could bring this perspective and really zone in on, on this, this little niche, <laughs> I guess, in the world of libertarian thought and explore some topics that haven't really been developed, I think, as far as maybe they should be. Things like like privatizing the road. Obviously, there's there's a lot of discussions about that. Um, I think we've we've brought some new ideas to discussions like that and thinking about it in the bigger picture of things like land use planning and real estate economics, all kinds of things like that. You know, there's a lot that that comes into play there that I think are issues that that libertarians might think about a little bit here and there, but we're trying to look at it holistically and really bring those these discussions of the built environment to people who are who are obviously interested in libertarian thought. Well, I'm going to link to it at the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1542. And Tim, thanks for your time on this topic. I mean, it's not, not every topic is going to be the genocide in Yemen, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, but there are still issues at the local level. I mean, I have no control over virtually anything the U.S. government does. But every now and again, some outraged citizens can do something about what's going on in their local area. Absolutely. And this is, this is an example of that. So thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. 
That was my interview on The Tom Wood Show, episode 1542. Joe, how do you think it went? I thought it was pretty good. I liked how there's not many episodes when Tom actually says to the guest, you know, I didn't think there was much here, but (laughs) I figured I'd go with it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. He doubled down at the end. He's he's, ready to say, yeah, this is exactly the war in Yemen, but you know, let's talk about it anyways. (laughs) That pretty much describes our podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Pedantic trivia is what we do best. That's our unique and important podcast. Yeah. By the way, we're making good use out of that clip from now on. No, but I think it went all right. It was a good synopsis of the stuff that we covered in episode 27. And it was good to get Tom's take on this stuff because he travels quite a bit and is a frequent purveyor of Airbnbs from what he said in the episode. Yeah, I was pretty happy with it. I felt like I got in everything I wanted to say and that I kept it somewhat concise and kind of kept the discussion moving along. Although I will say that before we started the episode, Tom mentioned that he had, you know, this outline that I had sent him and he told me he's just going to kind of follow the outline. So then he starts doing the introduction And as he's talking, I realized that I had actually sent him two outlines, kind of an initial one when I pitched the idea, and then another one as we were, you know, kind of finalizing the episode details. And I didn't know which one he was actually working off of. (laughs) But at the end of the day, that didn't matter because after he asked me the first question, I immediately went right off the rails (laughs) and just started running my mouth about one thing or the other, but I feel like we kind of circled around and and got in everything that that I wanted to talk about, so I was pretty happy with that. My only regret was that my earth, wind, and fire joke just totally bombed. <laughs> and you don't really hear it in the episode, but because because they edited it out, but there was just this I dropped this earth, wind, and fire bit, and there was just this long, awkward pause after it <laughs> <laughs> until I gave up and picked up the conversation again. <laughs> of course, I can only assume that Tom just had his his mic. Uh, muted and that he was laughing heartily he's probably just laughing so hard that he couldn't speak yeah of course yeah but man i thought that one would kill (laughs) i was really tempted to just throw in a yow to cap it off speaking of jokes bombing so it's been over a year since this episode was recorded has there been any news on the arinda shooting and or anyone convicted or anything like that? I looked it up, and as far as I can tell, they had arrested a handful of people within the weeks that followed it, but apparently they weren't able to hold them to anything, and they let them all go, and the, the whole thing still remains unsolved. The cops doing what they do best. Fail to catch the crook. Right. So, it's I mean, that's a real shame, but yeah, that's how these things go, right? What about Airbnb? What was their response to this thing? You said that they had changed some policies, but did that actually go into effect? As far as I can tell, they did change some policies. They have now, I guess they limit the number of people renting an Airbnb unit to 16 people now. And they have some rules around disruptive parties and events where guests can get their Airbnb profile removed. And where if they find out that a host has authorized like a big party, then I think they can suspend that host from the service. But then, of course, this was October of 2019. In March of 2020, we had the big COVID scare and basically people, I think, stopped having big events <laughs> at people's houses, at least for a little while. Airbnb was hit really hard by COVID. For one thing, some states put specific restrictions on Airbnbs and, and short-term rentals, as well as, of course, hotels and other things. But some of it was just the fact that people stopped traveling for a little while. People stopped having weddings people stopped having other large events that other people might be traveling for and staying places for. So I think COVID had a big hit on the short-term rental industry. 
Although I will say that where we are here in Maine, what we saw happen, we have a property that was our, our last house that we moved out of actually a year ago, right after this, this episode came out uh, in November. And we've kept that property now as a, as a rental property. We have a long-term renter in over the winter and we short-term rent over the summer. And what we saw happen was we had a number of bookings already lined up for the summer as of March of last year. And all of those bookings went away <laughs> by June. But then we saw a lot of them come back, not the same bookings, but, but we ended up rebooking again because at that time, Maine had really low COVID numbers, uh, really low numbers of COVID cases. And people in places like Boston or even New York were looking for places to get out and just bug out somewhere. And I think a lot of people from those areas ended up coming up this way, even whether to just to get away for a little bit or to spend a week away or, or to have a place to get out of the city and remote work from. So we were able to book our place back up. And I, I would assume that Airbnb probably recovered due to that kind of thing going on. But I imagine in cities, you know, like nobody's going to hang out in the city these days, <laughs> or at least they weren't in the peak of, of the COVID stuff, like in the early summer. So that, I think, took a lot of attention away from the other issues that most people are usually concerned about with short-term rentals. The other thing Airbnb was doing was they said they were verifying everybody's identities for all their hosts. I'm not sure what the status of that is. I have heard of people having to you know, upload some documentation or, or put in some, some information. I don't know if it's like a driver's license or something. I'm not sure if we've done that. My wife manages some of that stuff, but... I don't know that we've had to do anything special for that. Maybe it's like maybe if, if people are, are setting up new listings that they have new things they need to go through, but I don't think they've gone back through existing listings and had people update stuff. But at any rate, I think they are following through with some of the stuff they've said, but but I think things changed a bit when COVID hit. You said that they also set up some sort of system for neighbors to file complaints with Airbnb? Yeah, again, they, they've had some kind of neighbor complaint page set up before all this happened, they do have a phone number on it. They call it their neighborhood support team now. So I think that they are trying to respond more immediately when issues come up. And I don't know how well that's working or not, but it seems like they're at least trying to be more responsive to these kinds of things. So again, with everything that's happened with COVID, it's tough to really do a comparison of this year and last year with these new policies from Airbnb. But I would imagine that a lot of the issues people have had with short-term rentals in the past have probably been a lot more muted during this year. I want to talk a little bit about the process my town has gone through to regulate short-term rentals. We do now have a short-term rental ordinance in place. I was very involved in some of the discussions around this, really from the beginning through to the end. And I thought it'd be interesting to just talk through what this process was, some of the arguments that I and others made, or really some of the arguments that came up on both sides of the discussion, and how those were received and what came out of it. So I should say, as I said on our last episode about this, that I'm not going to say the name of my town here. I don't really want to make this about my town or the people involved. I just think it's interesting to talk about the kind of small town political process here and how things work at this level. Because for me, I've never really been involved in something like this to this extent. And I want to make some broader observations about some implications for libertarian arguments and ideas. So my town apparently has had this on their agenda for a number of years to talk about short-term rentals and to try to do something about them. 
but a red flag was kind of raised. This was the summer of 2019. There was a meeting about accessory dwelling units. And we've talked about these before, but essentially it's if you live in a single family residence zone where you're only allowed to build a single family home on a parcel of land, an accessory dwelling unit is kind of like a loophole exception to that that allows you to build another small unit like a basement apartment or like an in-law apartment above a garage that is a separate legal dwelling unit, which is something we support. In fact, I just finished building one in our basement <laughs> in our new house. We have a renter in there now. Anyway, so the planning board was trying to get this new ADU ordinance passed, but one of the conditions they had in there was that they weren't going to allow accessory dwelling units to do short-term rental. Their argument was, we don't want people building these additional housing units just to turn them into hotels, you know, just to rent them out short-term. If people are building these housing units, if we're letting people build these additional housing units, then we want them to be made available for long-term housing. And of course, you know, I, I protested that at the time. I said, building a housing unit is building a housing unit. <laughs> if someone's going to rent it short-term or rent it long-term, you know, that's up to them. But once it's built, that housing unit exists and short-term renting is not for everybody. Eventually, that's going to be available on the long-term rental market or be available for an in-law or for a kid home from college, something like that. If you just let them get built, at some point, it's going to serve the function of housing. <laughs> and why not let people get some short-term rental income on it to incentivize them to build them in the first place? So anyways, I thought that was all just silly, and I said all this at the time. But when this came up, all of us short-term rental hosts in the area saw this as kind of a shot across the bow that the town was not looking favorably on short-term rentals. And we saw this as kind of a slippery slope to more onerous regulations um, coming down the pipe from the town. So a handful of us got up and, and spoke about it. And of course, in doing so, they said, well, this isn't really about short-term rentals, but now that you mention it, we should really get that on the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so of course, then they took some time. It took a couple months. But by the fall, um, I don't remember the exact order of operations, but I think the planning board had been putting some stuff together about it, and that worked its way to the town council. And it was the kind of thing that the town council wasn't really talking about it yet, but they were starting to talk about setting up a workshop for it or tasking the town manager with putting together some kind of a draft ordinance. So we got together with a handful of people we know in the area. We happen to be, be friends with a handful of people who have short-term rentals in the area. We all started talking about this and thinking about ways that we could reach out and have a voice in this process as they were starting to put some kind of ordinance together. So we did a handful of things. One guy who is actually another architect in my town, who is also a short-term rental host, he's on a, a couple of committees in town. So he got a few of us in to talk with the Economic Development Committee, which is funny. You know, I get in there and <laughs> the two other people around the table are my old neighbor from across the street and another guy I know from a committee I'm on. So I, I should have mentioned this, but I'm actually on a building committee for an addition to the library in my town. And some of the folks on the committee, there's a couple of town councilors on that. I'm working with the town manager. And there are some other people who are really involved in the community who I've met through that involvement. And so before all this started, you know, I kind of knew a few of the, of the players involved. But anyway, so, you know, we had this meeting with the Economic Development Committee, very informal, but it gave us a chance to talk about some of the issues and kind of get an audience, get some reaction and get a sense of 
what people were thinking about it. And it's funny because, you know, one of the challenges to short-term rentals is that, you know, nobody wants one of these next door to them, right? Nobody wants to, to live across the street from an Airbnb. Well, I'm actually talking to the guy who, he doesn't live across, he has a business across the street from me. And at the end of the meeting, he comes out and he's like, yeah, so how, do, how does this all work? Like, how do you get involved with Airbnb? Like, <laughs> he actually has a rental unit and he was, you know, now got his wheels turning about thinking about renting it out. So, all right. So that was at least, I guess, gratifying for me to know that we hadn't ticked off the neighbors that much. Some other friends of ours set up, they sat down and had coffee with a couple of town councilors. That seemed to be a pretty positive discussion. A few of us set up another meeting with the town manager, the planning director, and there was someone else from the town. I don't remember what her role was, but we had a good kind of detailed conversation with them on some specific, I guess, what you call it, policy ideas <laughs> or some specific concerns and specific kind of things that, that they might be considering for the ordinance. I don't know that that we won them over. And I should say, I, I need to be clear here, the town manager in my town, and I think a lot of towns work like this, the town manager is essentially an employee. So it's not like we have a mayor, right, who's like elected by people and stuff. So the town council is elected, and then they hire the town manager as essentially an administrator. And our town manager is, I know we have a whole podcast griping about government and town governments and city governments and saying that they shouldn't do all of the stuff they do. But if I have to have a government, this woman is the woman I want managing my town. She is fantastic. Just seeing the way she works through the, the building committee that I'm on, having now sat through a handful of meetings and just seeing how on top of the budget she is and I mean, it's like when, when the town wants to do a project, it's like grant money just rains down onto our town. I don't know how she does it, but she's really on top of it. And honestly, you know, it's like we talk about things like private cities, you know, and the way that, that a private city should function more like a business. And to some extent, it's like you kind of see a town that's structured this way doing that, at least on the administrative side. You know, maybe not like the town council, you know, they get into spats about different things and it's still a, a political process, but... When it comes down to actually executing on the things that they want to do, I think for a town of our size, which is where it's probably like nine or 10,000 people, I think we're in pretty good hands. So anyways, that said, we met with these folks, got some pretty good responses from them. Again, they're not really taking sides one way or the other, but we felt like we were able to have our voices heard and to maybe dispel some of the myths or at least put some context to some of the concerns out there with Airbnbs. And we also, in some of these discussions, you know, we kind of realized what I said in, in the episode with Tom is that the properties you're having problems with, there's really like three or four properties in town that have gotten significant complaints. And they've said, you know, people have said like, yeah, you know, there, there are other things going on that don't always rise to the level of like the town council hearing about it. You know, my wife actually manages a property for somebody else in town and They've got like a parking complaints. They have a, a, a kind of weird parking situation over there and they've gotten parking complaints here or there. So, you know, of course these things happen, but there's really like three or four properties in town that have really been problematic. One thing that was interesting was that we were talking about this one, actually the, the wedding house that I mentioned in the episode with Tom, with the plain earth, wind and fire. And apparently the town had gone down there at some point. So the town has, they have some kind of a noise ordinance in place. But the noise ordinance, as, as we discussed in our last episode, the noise ordinance is based on, you know, so many decibels at the property line after these hours, right? So it's like, you, know, you can't have above 45 decibels at the property line after the hours of eight o'clock at night or something like that, right? So apparently the town went down there at one point because they wanted to try to, to get a reading on this guy when he had something going on in this property. The town went down there basically just to calibrate the, uh, the instrument, right? <laughs> 
and the ambient noise around the property was louder than what the noise ordinance allows for. <laughs> <laughs> because this place is on the water and there's a shipyard like a mile up the river <laughs> from where this place is. Was this during the daytime they, they measured it? Uh, yeah, the daytime or evening, but when nothing was going on at the property, right? They're just trying to get like a baseline reading. Uh, but you never get, I mean, just traffic a couple roads away will give you 45 dB pretty easily. <laughs> exactly. And so that, I mean, that speaks exactly to the point that we had made in our last episode that these kind of noise ordinances where you're trying to get some kind of objective measurement of like decibel levels, they just don't work. You can't meaningfully enforce noise disturbances that way, unless it's something like, you know, an air handling unit running all the time where it's a constant problem. It makes sense for something like that, or like an airport, right? <laughs> but for these intermittent disturbances, as we said, they're subjective. They're really hard to document. They're really hard to adjudicate after the fact. It ends up being a he said, she said kind of a thing. So these decibel level noise ordinances aren't really able to address these kind of complaints. At that point, we were feeling pretty good about the process. We felt that we had kind of bent the ear of uh, a number of people who were involved, that we had gotten, you know, not that they were necessarily on our side, but that at least we had gotten kind of a sympathetic hearing <laughs> out of a handful of people, and that we, we felt that some of our concerns would be taken seriously through the process of putting this ordinance together. And where this got us was, this was, let's see, in January of 2020, they set up a workshop. The way this works is the town council, before they set anything up for a public hearing or before they you know, finalize an ordinance or something like that, they have a, a more informal workshop where they can get together and really just have everybody discuss their thoughts on the issue without voting or, or making hard decisions on anything. So they set up this workshop. It was the entire town council. It was the entire planning board because the planning board had kind of kicked off this, this whole discussion. And... They said that we could have one representative from our group of short-term rental hosts who could sit in on this workshop and, and be a participant. So you'll never guess who we decided to send to the meeting. Your neighbor? <laughs> so, of course, much like the way I get myself invited onto the Tom Woods show, I got myself invited to this, uh, <laughs> to this town council workshop to talk about the short-term rental stuff. So it's like 20 of us sitting around this table. And I don't remember exactly how it went, but basically a few people went around kind of in a circle and said some of their concerns and said some of their thoughts on what they thought should be done. And then they turned around to me and asked me what I thought. <laughs> so I flipped over the table, told them taxation is theft and they all have blood on their hands. So I picked up the draft ordinance that they had and they started going down through line by line of each of the parts and pieces that they had in there. And you got to understand when they put these things together, it's like they go to the town council and say, well, what do you want to see? And they go to the planning board and say, well, what do you want to see? And then they go to the fire chief and say, well, you know, what do we need to do for safety? And they go to the, the code enforcement and say, what's well, actually enforceable. And so, you know, when they talk about making sausage, it's like, that's what's kind of going on behind the scenes, right? In order to get to this point of having this, this draft ordinance. So the whole thing ends up being this like laundry list of all of these ideas about what people think is the best way to regulate short-term rentals in the town. And so just, I mean, again, just like we did in our last episode, I just start going down and picking these things off one by one. I mean, it's all basically stuff that at least I had <laughs> seen and read about before. And, you know, some of it is, is, is a typical stuff. I should say right off the bat that they weren't talking about a ban, that everybody was kind of saying, I shouldn't say everybody, some people, I think, would have liked to see a much stronger ordinance and, and see something more like a ban or something like an owner-occupancy requirement. Actually, I think it did have an owner-occupancy requirement in there at one point, 
which would mean that if you want to rent out a room or something short term that you would have to live in the house in order to do that, which really kills the entire market because most people, it's like a second home or something that they're renting out. Anyways, the town, they weren't coming out with the knives out. <laughs> I think they certainly thought that they were trying to come up with a very balanced kind of minimal type of ordinance. So they were talking about things like, well, maybe it's not a license, you know, maybe it's just a registration. The biggest concern initially was they said, we want to know where these places are so that when something happens, we know that that's a short-term rental and we know how to react to it and what to do about it and, and that kind of a thing. And of course, you know, I can gripe about that, but compared to some of the other things other towns have done, registering my short-term rental is the least of my problems, right? <laughs> but then they started to put in other things like, well, you know, maybe there should be a limit on the number of days people could rent it. Maybe there should be additional parking requirements because now you have more people coming to the house. Maybe there should be occupancy limits on how many people you can rent the house to at a time. So a lot of the kind of things that we talked about in our last episode in one form or another. So, of course, I got up there and just went right down the list. And I, I mean, I was, I was very cordial. I was very, you know, respectful of the process and, and everything. But with each point, I just tried to make the strongest argument I could about why this didn't make sense, why that didn't make sense, why this didn't make sense. Right. And so I get through and they, they let me talk for a while. I mean, it was they kind of gave the floor to me. And, and so I I think I had a fair hearing, but I get done going through my list. Actually, I don't know that I got done it. I think they did cut me off at some point. Actually, yeah, that's right. Because one guy afterwards is like, man, I can't believe they cut you off like that. I told him, like, I'm like, man, I would have just I was just going to keep talking until they cut me <laughs> off. So well, Rand Paul filibuster. That was the only way that was going to end. <laughs> But I did, I was able to get in a lot of arguments that I wanted to get in to the point that one of the guys who I know, by the time I was done talking, <laughs> he turns around, he says, is there anything you like in it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just said, uh, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, they moved along and, you know, and a few other people kept talking about it. I think I at least got them to the point where they realized that this cake wasn't done yet. <laughs> And I think they then kicked it to like another workshop or another round of the town manager to go through and tune up some of the parts and pieces that I had just crapped all over. So the workshop ended, I had a couple of good quick conversations with some people afterwards. And again, I would say that, you know, I think they were disappointed that I, let me say this, I think that some of them agreed with some of the flaws that I pointed out. And there were, there were some real flaws, like, like just like functional things that, that didn't really make sense, like contradictions in this thing. And so I think some people appreciated some of that. But at the end of the day, I think people saw me as just being obstructionist <laughs> to this whole thing, which was exactly my point. But I think some people saw that as being uncooperative. Of course, I couldn't leave well enough alone. So after this workshop, they had a town council meeting. And during every council meeting, there is a, a public comment section where basically anybody can get up and say anything, right? You get three minutes, you can get up and say whatever you want. So I get up again in the town council meeting. And I did it. I, I kind of got up and just thanked them. Like I just wanted to kind of formally thank them for including me in that process, inviting me into that process. <laughs> and I said, but there are three more things I just wanted to say about this. <laughs> just pick up exactly where you, the way they cut you off. <laughs> exactly. Part of it was that, that there were some comments made after I spoke that I wasn't really able to react to in the workshop that I wanted to respond to. So that was kind of my, my motive in getting up. But I did get a note from them after the meeting saying, like, I can't believe you got up afterwards and kept talking. <laughs> but hey, you know, that, that's how you fight the fight, I guess. So this all ended up in another workshop. This was in early March of 2020. 
And unfortunately, I was not invited back to the second workshop. <laughs> but I did, along with others, submit some additional comments, some additional thoughts on this. And in fact, another thing that we had been doing during this whole process, at one point when this whole thing started, I started going through Airbnb. And actually, I was using the site we mentioned in our last episode, um, AirDNA, which is this kind of aggregator site that you can go on and it pulls listings from Airbnb and VRBO HomeAway and puts them onto a map and tracks some other, some different statistics and data about where they believe these short-term rental listings to be. So I actually went through all of the listings in my town. And I had said this earlier on that this should be like an easy thing to enforce because it's not hard to find where these places are. I was able to do it, but it was quite a bit harder than I thought it was going to be. Basically, what I was doing is I could go through the AirDNA, I could find the listing, I could pull up the listing to see if it was active on Airbnb or on VRBO. And then I was looking at the, my town has a GIS map where you can click in and you can look at satellite image. Of course, you can go on Google and look at 3D street views and stuff. And my town's not that big. So like, I know a lot of places just kind of by sight anyways, at least on some of the main roads. So I actually went in, you know, visually going through satellite images and looking at the GIS doing, you can do name searches of like tax records on the GIS system. And you can, you know, search like a host name on the tax records, pop up their property and then check it against the satellite and check it against the listing photos and basically confirm that, yes, this listing is this property owned by this person. And so I generated this whole list of every Airbnb and VRBO listing in our town where I had the property address, I had the owner's mailing address, at least your tax mailing address. And then I started to document some information about each unit, like how many bedrooms is it? Like how many units are on the property? Is it on a main road? Is it in a neighborhood? And with that, I was able to do some pretty interesting analysis on all of these listings. I'll come back to that in a minute. The initial idea with putting this whole list together was that we now had a mailing list of all of the short-term rental hosts in town. And so we literally sat down and we wrote up a letter. We signed it, my wife and I, along with a few of our other friends who were involved to this point in this process. And as these meetings were happening, we were mailing letters to all the short-term rental hosts in town saying, hey, this thing's going on. Send a comment into the town council. If you know somebody who's involved with this process, like pick up the phone, call your town counselor, talk to people on the planning board or whoever's involved, let them know what you're doing, talk about your short-term rental, talk about how you deal with nuisances, how your relationship is going with your neighbor, what benefits this brings to the community. Like, for example, one guy mentioned that our town has this block party every year where they have, you know, they have bands come in, they have all kinds of vendors set up, they close off a few blocks of the downtown area. And this one thing they have is they have like a lumberjack competition <laughs> where they get these people to come in and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff with chainsaws. But apparently uh, one of the guys in my town the, the whole lumberjack competition, this whole crew like stays at his Airbnb rental <laughs> during the few days while they're here. And they've done this like for a, a number of years now. I hope they're not doing chainsaw races across his living room floor. <laughs> you know what that is? It's when you fire up the chainsaw, put it down on the floor and just let it go. <laughs> See who wins. I learned about that from a Maine guy. Yeah, no, believe me, here in Maine, that's one of the first things that we put on the house rules in our in our Airbnb rentals. No chainsaw races. In the house. But being able to go to the town councilors and tell those kind of stories, talk about how people have families that come back year after year. We have a group of women who have come back three years now in the fall for a film festival that happens in our area. 
and you know that that's the kind of thing that people don't think about is that people think of an Airbnb as like an empty housing unit, right? That's just not contributing anything to the community. But the reality is that the people who are coming and renting here, they're the people who are going to the theater shows and who are going to the restaurants and going on shopping at the retail outlets. These people, even though they're only here for a weekend or a week at a time, they're really contributing a lot to the, the vibrancy of our town and making the kind of businesses and cultural events that everybody wants in town, they really make them viable. I can tell you that our Airbnb guests go out to restaurants a lot more than my wife and I do, unfortunately. So there were a lot of good stories like that that we started hearing from other hosts in town. And one of my other friends started like a Facebook group where people could get involved and we could all kind of get on the same page with how we were reacting to some of the things that were coming out in the ordinance. So more and more people were getting involved as this process went along. And we get to this last workshop in March. And at this point, you know, I had said everything I could say. All the arguments we made in our last episode, I had put out there at this point, just throwing things at the wall to see what would stick. So what I thought I would do for this final workshop, which again, I wasn't invited to, I took all that data I had been putting together on all the short-term rental units, and I started to do some analysis. So one thing that I did is in Google Maps, you can go on and create your own map where you drop all these pins on it in certain places. And so I was able to take a spreadsheet of all the property addresses out of my spreadsheet, put them in Google Maps, and generate a map of my town with all of the short-term rental units located on a map. And I did this very vaguely, like I like I didn't have any street names or anything. I kind of zoomed out the scales. So you couldn't see exactly where things were. But it showed a couple of interesting things. For one thing, a lot of people were afraid that the downtown area in my town was like getting taken over by short-term rentals. All these housing units in the downtown area were just going to be disappearing and becoming short-term rentals, which as we talked about last episode, is dumb. It just doesn't make that much sense <laughs> as a rental property. In fact, we're testing this now with our last house, which we're now keeping as a rental property, whether it makes more sense to just keep it as a long-term rental year-round or whether it's worth the time and effort and cost of doing short-term rental during the summer. So we'll, after this year, we'll have a pretty good, although this year is going to be tough to judge because COVID, <laughs> but moving forward, it'll be a pretty interesting gauge of how viable short-term rental to standalone investment in my town is because it's so seasonal. Yeah, my wife wants to buy a beach house around here that we could have for our own use. But then, of course, we would rent it out for short-term rentals as well to try to recoup some of the money and, and get it to pay for itself. And I've done the math on it. And you know, when you consider all the headaches of turning it over, cleaning it up after every guest and that sort of thing, it just doesn't make any sense to me to do that, at least in our situation. It doesn't, no. And, that, and that's what, you know, these people see like, oh, wow, these places are getting 500 bucks a night, you know, and they think people are just raking it in. But it's like, yeah, you're getting some of these like big places are getting 500 bucks a night for basically eight weekends out of the year, right? <laughs> and then in the winter, like nobody's renting that place, you know? And so what most people do is what we do is you get a, um, a longer term, by long term, I mean more than 30 days, but you get a rent here in there for several months over the winter which we actually have a pretty strong rental market and even like a, I'd call it like a temporary rental market because I mentioned we have the shipyard nearby. There's a lot of transient people coming through the shipyard for like three months stints or six months stints or something like that. So there's actually a need in my town for this kind of rental unit that can be available for the shorter rental terms. Short-term rentals actually provide that. And there are some cases where these people who come in needing housing like to go to because they're on assignment at the shipyard They'll come in and they'll pay like Airbnb prices for a month in the summer and then be able to stay into the fall because that's what gets them into housing in my area. 
And to some extent, they're getting like a housing stipend from the shipyard or whatever. So there's all kinds of stuff that goes into that. But we had a renter last year who was a traveling nurse. That's a good market for people who have short-term rentals who are looking for maybe not a year renter, but like someone who's there for a few months. Traveling nurses is a website called Furnished Finder, which seems to have a lot of traveling nurses and other people who are looking for, you know, like maybe a one to six month kind of a stay. So anyways, I'm belaboring this point. But there was this concern that all these housing units in our downtown were going to get gobbled up by short-term rental investors. I think what I was able to show on this map was that that's not the case. In fact, it's true that there are more short-term rental units within what's considered the downtown area, but there's also a lot more housing units to begin with. You know, this is the original part of town where you have small lots, you have duplexes, you have multifamily housing, you have a lot of properties and a lot of housing units within this section of town. So when you do the math and you divide the number of short-term rental units by the number of properties and the number of housing units, that ratio is no different than really the rest of the town. And it's kind of like, I think at one point we mentioned, we mentioned even nationally, it's like maybe between one to 3% of housing units are maybe used for short-term rental. And that's basically what we found pretty consistently throughout the town, that if you grab, wherever you draw that bubble around a group of houses, that ratio kind of held true for the most part. Another interesting thing I found is that a lot of the units, particularly in this downtown area, were second units on a property that somebody had as their primary residence. So you had a number of what would be considered accessory dwelling units, you know, the, the apartment over the garage or the basement apartment, or maybe a duplex or some smaller second unit. There were a lot of properties like that. So that was interesting. Another interesting thing I found is that a lot of the units I forget the number, but it might have been like 50% of the units were on main roads in my town as opposed to being like tucked back into neighborhoods. So a lot of them were located in places where they wouldn't necessarily be that much of a disturbance to their neighbor. They're not really tucked into a neighborhood. And this was true of our last property. It was on this main road and we had like one house on one side of us and there's like you know a couple houses across the street. And I found that that was true of, of a lot of these properties. I think that people who are looking to set up a short-term rental aren't looking at like a suburban home with close neighbors as the best place to invest in a short-term rental property, you know? There are certainly a lot of those in my town, but when you look at the actual units that are out there, I wasn't seeing a lot that were like, the guy next door to me just turned his house into a hotel. All right, I should have done this before, but I actually just pulled up the numbers I came up with so I can give you some actual numbers here. So to speak to the last two points, I found that AirDNA showed like maybe 90 listings in my town. But when you break that down, some of those were multiple listings on one property, like where they might have an accessory dwelling unit and they might list a room and, and list a dwelling unit or list a whole house. You know, they might have different ways that they're listing their property. There were a handful of those. There were some other links on there that were dead links that weren't active listings anymore. And so the number I came up with was 72 dwelling units within my town that have recently been listed as short-term rentals. My town has a little over 5,000 dwelling units, so that ends up being 1.4% of all the dwelling units in my town. Again, that's a pretty small number, and it's consistent with other numbers I've seen nationally. And then the number I had on this concern that you have these concentrations in certain neighborhoods, the highest concentration I found, and this was trying to get the number high, you know, I was trying to see, like, what's the worst case here in this downtown area was 5%. I couldn't directly do dwelling units because I just don't have, if a property has multiple dwelling units, I don't have that breakdown. And so what I found is that when I drew a bubble around the downtown area, the number of properties, you get like 5% or less 
properties that have a short-term rental on the property. And what that means is that the actual percentage of housing units is a lot less because a lot of the properties in that area have multiple units. Some of these short-term rental properties might actually have a primary residence on the property as well. So again, I wasn't seeing like a big concentration of short-term rentals in any particular area as a percentage of the total number of properties. All right, another thing I looked at here, one of the big arguments against short-term rentals is that they're making housing less affordable, that you have what might otherwise be a for smaller affordable housing units that are being bought up by investors to be turned into, into short-term rentals. First of all, one thing that I found was that 42 of the 72 short-term rental properties have the owner's tax mailing address listed as the same as the property address. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where the owner lives, but it suggests that at least for a lot of these properties that they have some presence there, whether it's a vacation home or whether it's a property where they have you know, a second unit that they rent out or where they rent out a room in their primary residence. So more than half of these units, that was the case. I think I also showed that this argument that smaller affordable units are being turned into short-term rentals, I don't think that's the case. 50% of the short-term rental units had three or more bedrooms. There were only seven one-bedroom short-term rental units, and all of those were second units on a property that had a larger unit. So those are essentially the accessory dwelling units. Looking at where these units are, most of the units were in the more expensive parts of town, which makes sense because if you're going to rent a short-term rental, you want to be in a nice part of town where you're either close to the downtown area or you're close to the coastline or you have a nice view. And so all of those units, you know, none of those units, if they go on the housing market, those are not going to be affordable housing units, right? And of course, again, you know, I have to say this every time that part of the reason we don't have affordable housing in my town is that for the last 40 years, my town has had zoning policies with things like a one acre minimum lot size on, on 80% of the land area in my town. So that means that in order to build one housing unit, you need to have one acre of land. To build two housing units, to build a duplex, you need to have two acres of land, which again, nobody's building a duplex if they have two acres. And even in like the downtown areas where they have lower minimum lot size requirements, what you find there is that the lots are smaller. And so you just don't have that many lots that can allow for multifamily housing because it's like, yeah, maybe you have a district where you only need 10,000 square feet of lot size per dwelling unit, but then the lot sizes are only 10,000 square feet <laughs> or 15,000 or, or 19,000. So you're still stuck with just single family homes on all of these parcels throughout town. Anyways, we've talked about that before, but it always bears repeating that to the extent that there's a housing crisis in my town, it's their own fault for these stupid zoning policies that they've had in place for decades. Another thing I wanted to look at is this complaint that you have out-of-state investors coming in and gobbling up properties just to pad their investment portfolios, right? I think somebody said that verbatim in one of these hearings. So I took a look at that. And what I found is that of these 72 properties with short-term rentals, there were only 12 of them where the owner's tax mailing address was outside of New England. And the vast majority of these listings were within an hour drive of town. So it's not like you have all these people in New York buying up properties in Maine just to rent on Airbnb. A lot of these, I think, are vacation homes or weekend homes where the owners are trying to turn the second home into some kind of a productive asset. And, uh, you know, I mean, to me, like, that's all to the good. It's like these people get a second home. They're providing a service for visitors coming in. And those visitors coming in, as we said before, are going to businesses, they're going to cultural events in town. 
and they live close by, so they have hands-on management of these properties. Short-term renting, much more so than long-term renting, requires a lot of hands-on management. I mean, you're there doing turnovers, or at least if you're not there, you might have a property manager or somebody doing it. You're constantly checking in on the site. You're constantly there bumping into your neighbors, talking to your neighbors, you know, finding out if, if anything has been going on. As a short-term rental host, you have to pay a lot of attention to the property and spend a lot of time there. Another thing I looked at was this concern that people are buying up multiple properties and, you know, creating ghost hotels or creating some kind of short-term rental empire in town, right? I didn't find any owners who owned more than one short-term rental property. In fact, my wife and I, now that we've kept our old house as a rental property, and we've just finished this accessory dwelling unit in our basement, which we have a long-term renter in there now, but we're in the summer, we're going to try to do that as a short-term rental. I think we're going to be the first, <laughs> the first short-term rental empire builder in our town. <laughs> oh yeah, and by the way, two of the listings I found were commercial motel rooms that they just happened to list on Airbnb, and two other listings I found were houseboats. <laughs> I also looked at a breakdown of rentals of an entire home versus renting a room within a home. There, I found of of the seventy-two units, there were sixty-three units where they rent the entire home five units that rent one or more rooms, but not the entire home, and four units that list the entire home sometimes and individual rooms at other times. And the units where they were renting rooms, there were only three dwelling units that listed more than one room available as a room rental. And so if you remember in our last episode, we were talking about this concern from the fire code about renting multiple rooms to multiple different people and having that be essentially become like a boarding house, which is looked at differently within the building codes and rightly so. What I found is that that really isn't happening anywhere in town, right? Nobody's renting out more than two individual rooms at a time within any single dwelling unit. So that was this whole analysis that I did. As I said, I made these maps to go along with it. I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> I was surprised by some of those results I found. In fact, you know, I, I expected to find more concentration of units in certain neighborhoods. I thought there would be more listings overall than what I found. I was surprised that so many units were owned by residents of my town, or at least people who had, you know, again, their mailing address here in town. So I wrote this all up and I tried to do it. I, I did a little editorial at the beginning, but then I tried to just present the data as, as dryly as I could. Well, that's not quite true. I did weave in some arguments here and there, at least to try to, to, try to give context to the way they should be looking at and understanding these numbers that I had put together. I put all this together. And I fired it off to the town council right before this final workshop to finalize the ordinance so that I could go to a vote. My hope by giving them all this data, and you know, I knew that they might take this and cherry pick some stuff out of it that told the story that they wanted to tell, which is exactly what I did. So, you know, fair enough. But if we were going to be making these arguments like these units are getting gobbled up in this neighborhood or whatever, I wanted the data to be out there. And like, if we're going to talk about that, let's talk about what's actually going on. Like, let's talk about the actual data that's out there. Then on top of that, as I said before, other people were coming in and telling their stories. And one of the lessons I learned from this whole thing, which maybe we'll talk about more in a minute, is that what I think really gets people thinking, especially people who are on that side of the table, feel like it's their responsibility to be making decisions on behalf of people in town, you know, these people they would call their constituents. I think the data can help to get some of the myths off the table and some of the just outlandish claims. But at the end of the day, I think what changes people's minds is those kind of personal stories that I was mentioning earlier. 
in getting to know some of these other short-term rental hosts, I would hear stories of like, you know, a single woman who has a property where they have maybe a separate unit that they rent out and that becomes some meaningful income for them. Well, and that's what you guys do too. I mean, you rely on that income to help pay for the house that you've bought in that town. Well, right. I mean, you know, I mentioned we just built this ADU in our basement. We're hoping that over a number of years that we'll be able to recoup a lot of the cost that we invested in that place, that we, you know, that we invested in creating this additional housing unit in my town. But at the same time, by doing it as a short-term rental, I mean, this, this is in our basement. It's, it's part of our house. We're primarily going to use it as an office space for my wife and I. We both work for ourselves. We've been working from home long before COVID ever came around. But now that the kids are home a lot more, their school just went remote this week. So we're all home working now at the same time. You know, having that basement office space is going to mean a lot for our family. And the fact that we're able to share that space with other visitors coming in, that if we need to, if again, we're, we're both self-employed, our income is all over the map. You know, it goes up and down. Our cash flow is, is all over the place. And so having the ability to take that unit, if we need to, and get a renter in there, whether it's for a month or two, we could do that. We could ramp up the short-term rentals at certain times of years and, and try to generate some more income that way. It really gives us a lot of flexibility, both for our own cash flow management and for how we use our property and how we make the most out of our home. All right, so I got all this data together. Everybody got all the stories together. We got all this stuff over to the town council. And on top of this, we had given them this list of, at this point, we were down to like four or five really specific things within the ordinance that we were still concerned about. You know, we were, we were honestly, we were like giving a little on some things and really trying to pick our battles with what was still going on with the ordinance. At this point, they had made it a licensure requirement as opposed to just a simple registration. But what's interesting is they set it up as a business license. So in other words, it wasn't like a zoning thing. What some towns are doing is they're like rezoning their town or like reading into their zoning ordinance, some prohibition on short-term rentals. Our town did not do that. They set this up as a business license where you have to register. That gave the town an opportunity to kind of review and get familiar with the property. But then they had stuff in there like parking spaces. They were requiring you to, first of all, meet the town's, like the zoning requirement for minimum number of parking spaces, as well as add an additional parking space for a short-term rental unit. Okay, so the way this works in my town is that you're required to have a certain number of parking spaces for each dwelling unit. And this is for new construction. This is not for, or like if you're expanding or, or something, but this is not for existing properties, right? Existing properties have the parking they have, and they don't have to go and add new parking spaces. However, with a short-term rental permit, if someone wants to go and get a short-term rental license, they have to show that they have the required number of parking spaces plus this additional parking space. So what that means in most of my town is that you have to have two parking spaces per dwelling unit in the zoning ordinance, which is stupid. But on top of that, now you have to have a third parking space, okay? Here's another thing they did. They were putting in an occupancy limit on these short-term rentals so that you could only have two occupants per bedroom staying in your short-term rental. So that means that if you have a one-bedroom unit, you can rent it out to two people. If you have a two-bedroom unit, you can rent it out to a maximum of four people. If you have a three-bedroom, six people. Now, when you get to these properties that have, remember the ones I said in, in the episode with Tom, these problematic properties, there was one that was like a five-bedroom, one was a six-bedroom, one was a seven-bedroom. So the five-bedroom can only rent to 10 people. <laughs> 
the six bedroom can only rent to 12 people. The seven bedroom can only rent to 14 people. Well, guess what? Those were the limits that those people had in their listings to begin with. So this occupancy limit is doing nothing to limit the number of people within those properties. However, what it does is for the one and two bedroom units, now you're telling people that they can't have a family of three stay in your one bedroom unit, <laughs> right? Or a family of five stay in your two bedroom unit. Okay, so this is the kind of stuff they were coming up with. So of course, we were coming back and complaining about that. But then you take that and take that in hand with a parking requirement. Are you following my math on this? So now you have, let's say, a four bedroom unit. You're allowed to have eight occupants. You're required to have three parking spaces. The seven bedroom units, they're required to have three parking spaces. So guess what? That doesn't solve the wedding party parking problem, right? <laughs> but now you get down to a three bedroom unit. They're allowed to have six guests. They're required to have three parking spaces. A two bedroom unit is only allowed to have four guests, but they're required to have three parking spaces. A one bedroom unit is only allowed to rent to two guests, but they're required to have how many? Say it with me. Three, three parking, parking spaces. spaces. <laughs> right? So of course we complained about that. This is the kind of thing, and of course you can expand this to any kind of legislation that's out there, right? They put this legislation in place that attempts to solve some problem that's happening with, let's say, a large company or, or a larger institution or something like that. And of course, it just ends up strangling the smaller participants in that market. Not only that, but the land use ordinance, these two parking spaces you're required to have, they don't count tandem parking spaces. So if you have a driveway where you can park three cars in a row, that only counts as one parking space as far as the town is concerned. <laughs> so on at least half of the properties, I mean, how many, you think of how many properties are there out there where you can park three cars on the property without parking one behind the other? My house, we can only park behind each other. Right. It's a single driveway. Right. So if they're, and, and I don't know that they would have enforced that, but again, that's what's on the books. So you're literally, I mean, if they were to enforce that, you'd be prohibiting like at least half of the properties. I mean, it's got to be 75% of the properties in town from ever doing short-term rental right off the bat, just because they don't have three side-by-side, -side, you know, lined and striped parking spaces. Another thing we were complaining about is the whole reason that they wanted to do a license is that a license is something you can take away, right? Which was my whole argument to begin with, that this is a problem because I'm viewing this as a fundamental property right. And now they're saying that you have to go get this license, which is something that they can now take away from you, which is essentially taking away that property right. So then the question is, well, what can they take the license away for? And what it was is they had some kind of vague language in there about if you have three or more violations in a 12-month period that they could take your license away, right? That's not exactly how it was worded, but it was very vague. And it was like, it was a kind of thing that it's like, well, are they going to pull my license? Like if somebody's parked on the street in front of the house, or is this like a noise or, or like if my neighbor just complains about noise and it's not like a criminal citation, like, is, is that a violation? There's really kind of gray area around how they're actually going to enforce this thing. And then finally, of course, when there's this license requirement, there has to be a penalty for not getting a license. And the way this was written is that it was a $500 per day fine for any violation. Okay, so I'm thinking about this. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, let's say that I rented my house last July for a week to somebody while I was on vacation. And I'm new to this. I didn't know that the town had the license requirement. The town gets wind of it like a year later, right? Now the town goes back and says, well, you've had this short-term rental for a year and we have this penalty of $500 a day for not having a short-term rental license. 
do the math on that, that ends up being $180,000 in fines for your year of non-compliance. And now, of course, in discussions with the town, like I honestly, I don't think that's how they meant to enforce it. But, you know, you get this law on paper and that's how it reads. And it's like, yeah, these people who are putting this law together, it's like, oh, well, we would never, we're not going to enforce it that way. That's not what this is about, you know. But five years from now, you got a different town council in there. You have different code enforcement officers, different people looking at this stuff. And maybe you're getting more complaints for whatever reason on certain properties. Somebody dusts off this ordinance. They go back and read it. And they're like, hey, look it. We have a $500 per day fine for these people. Let's go get them. You know? And then they drop the hammer. So this is the kind of stuff we were complaining about. They get into this workshop. They didn't bring up any of that stuff, right? <laughs> None of that stuff got a single mention. What did get a mention, and this hadn't come up this whole time until now, was that one of the counselors said, you know what? We're putting these licenses out there. I think that in addition to just having the license, I think we need to have a cap on the number of licenses so that we only issue a certain number of licenses every year. It's a bloody taxi medallion. <laughs> exactly. It's Well, it's effectively, it's a ban. You're basically grandfathering the existing operators, right? Us, the, the people who already had short-term rentals. You're kind of grandfathering them into the system. And then you're cutting it off for anybody else beyond that. So the way that they did this was that they said, for the first year, we're going to let anybody apply for a lot. Oh, no, it wasn't even the first year. It was until, it was until uh, December of this past year, this past December, right? It was like nine months or whatever. Anybody who wants to apply for a short-term rental license can come and apply and they get a license. And then that sets this baseline. And then beyond that, we're only going to increase the number of licenses by, I forget that, I think it was like 5% each year, right? <laughs> so I just said that, you know, since I just mentioned, there are 72 properties with short-term rentals in my town that I can tell. And I don't even know, they all had active listings, but I don't know how many of those are actually active, are actively renting and are actually paying attention to this and will be going and applying for licenses. So 72 licenses in town, a 5% increase is three licenses each year <laughs> that they're going to allow. Which, you know what, in the course of a year, you know, maybe there's only three people who want to start doing short-term rental, but probably not. It's probably more than that. And part of their thinking on this is they're like, well, you know, as people start and stop it, that these licenses are going to turn over and then those licenses would become available for more people to do this. So it's not like we're just like capping this thing. It's like, it's, you know, this thing will just rotate and people will get these licenses. It's like, no, they won't. Once somebody gets their hands on one of these licenses, they're never giving that up. And we're not. <laughs> it's like having season tickets at Fenway Park. Exactly. Except you're never giving up that license. That came up in this workshop and none of these other issues that we had raised, which again, like the parking thing, it's this total contradiction with the occupancy thing. These weren't like unreasonable things. Like we're not just being obstructionist on this. It's like, this doesn't make sense to require people to have three parking spaces for a unit that only allows two people to be there. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you get the third car there? <laughs> so these things are televised. So we're, we're sitting at home watching it. This thing ends. And I'm, I'm at that point, I'm kind of like, well, I guess that's that. You know, I'm throwing my hands up. And my wife is like livid <laughs> at this point. Right? She's not an anarchist yet, though, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what will it take? <laughs> she gets right at her computer and like and starts typing up an email <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it was actually she did a great job with it she's like you know we just watched this thing and she's like we feel like our voices weren't being heard we wanted to live in a small town because we wanted to get involved in the community we want to be in a place where we felt like you know we could participate in what's going on and all this and this was earnest oh she wasn't like bullshit right yeah we've had these discussions all along and we get to this point and you don't talk about a single one of our concerns in this final workshop not only that, then you come out and you do the most restrictive thing 
that's been discussed in this whole process just on a whim that hasn't had any public discussion. Like it wasn't even raised as an idea before this process. Like none of us had a chance to read. Like it wasn't even on the table, you know, yeah. until the 11th hour here. And she got in a couple more specifics there, but she sent this off, not to everybody, but to a couple people on the town side of the table who we've been having some dialogue with back and forth. So she wasn't trying to like put notice out to everybody. She was really just trying to get some kind of a response to be like, like, what is going on here? Why is this happening? So she did get some initial responses back. We found out that this then got sent to a few other people like around the town council. And at that point, we're like, well, geez, this is kind of like getting around, <laughs> making the rounds at this point. We actually got a phone call from one of the counselors who has been generally sympathetic through this process. And he said, look, let me know what you guys like, want to bring up. Like, I'll think about it and we'll see if we can get something worded in there, if we can make. Basically, the way this happened was they had this workshop the next week. It might have been even been like, oh, yeah, I think it was like the following week, right? This like all happened kind of over a weekend. He's like, basically, they have a chance to make some final revisions, like just to town council, make some final revisions before the final vote. And then they all vote on it. He said, you know, like, let me know what your concerns are. So we did. We kind of, you know, we, we got our pencils out again. And this was kind of beyond the point of making arguments, right? At this point, we're literally just like, I mean, almost literally like crafting language <laughs> that would go in the ordinance, <laughs> which like I'm crawling out of my skin as I'm doing it. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but we tried to pick what we thought were a couple of things like the parking thing that could be achieved by a simple discussion and simple vote in this final go around. So we did that. And he says... He's like, I'll, I'll put some of these things out there. He's like, but, but like, I can't, you know, I can't carry this thing. He's like, I need some support from other people. He might've been like, go oh, talk to this guy and this guy. Like, I think there were a couple of people that he'd been having conversations that he's like, he's like, reach out to this guy, see what he thinks, see what he thinks, see what she thinks, whatever. And so we started basically making phone calls then to, to some of the town counselors and having discussions with them about some of these issues and just having, again, just one final round of discussions, like direct discussions with them, like one-on-one. -on -one. Because I realized at that point that like this whole process, like this all happening in front of cameras, you know, it's all happening up on the main stage, except for like those initial early meetings we have, which were kind of, I guess I'd say behind closed doors. They weren't like secretive, but it's like we had these one-on-one -on -one meetings with counselors. We had some initial meetings with some of the town administrators. And that was where we were really able, I think, to connect, to get our voices heard. And once that goes to a public forum, that all kind of goes out the window, you know, then we're just a special interest fighting for our own profit motive or whatever. So by the end of the weekend, we ended up talking to a number of these counselors. This was my wife. This was myself. This was some of our friends and other people in the group. We weren't really broadcasting it at this point because we were kind of like, you know, it's we've beaten these guys over the head enough. Like at this point, we just kind of need to take their pulse, you know, and we need to listen to them a little bit and just try to give them a little bit of fuel if they do want to support some of our final arguments initially we were just reaching out to the people we thought were being supportive but just the way some of the communication went we realized that we had reached out to almost everybody on the town council except for like this one guy i saw as the one guy who was kind of the most opposed i guess to or, or yeah I, I guess he was the most opposed i think he was the one who introduced this cap on the number of licenses he was someone who said Oh, this is what happened. So in this workshop, he pulls up my map and he says, I can walk to 12 Airbnbs within a, a, a five minute walk from my house. You know, <laughs> So there's all this data I've given them. And he just throws it right back in my face. Right. Of course, what he didn't know is that of those 12 units, six of them were properties that had a secondary dwelling unit on the property, which is what those were. People rented out. <laughs> people were renting out accessory dwelling units. So again, it's that same housing argument all over again.
And I will say that this guy, it's not like he was just slamming this stuff. I mean, I think he thought that he was listening to all this stuff with an open ear. But I think he really just like he just didn't get it. Like he just didn't understand how people would like us would like move out of their house and rent their house out to somebody for a weekend. Normalcy bias. Yeah, I think I think it was just like like that. He just like couldn't wrap his head around that. And I think that mindset is something that's that's hard to get by. Not I mean, not just for this guy, but for a lot of people, I think it's like. Yeah, normalcy buys, right? It's that they can't imagine themselves doing this. So they can't imagine how somebody else could do this. And so they think, well, why should somebody else do this? <laughs> you know? And what they've learned their whole lives is that when things happen that are not normal, you legislate. Right. You either need to, you either need to, what, what did they say? You need to subsidize it or prohibit it? <laughs> right. Yeah, it, you're right. It's something that needs attention because it's, it's out of the norm. Um, even though, as we've said, in the, you know, this has been going on for, for decades in Maine. Maine is vacation land. The whole state up the coastline is vacation homes and vacation rentals. You know, this has been happening for a long time in my town and in every other town around me. So, anyways, I realized at the end of the day, I'm like, you know what? I know I'm not going to get this guy on my side, but I feel like the stand up thing to do here is I got to reach out to this guy and we've talked to all these other counselors. I got to give him a chance to hear me directly and to, you know, let him know that I'm hearing him. <laughs> I'm not expecting to change his mind, but. I was just hoping to kind of soften him a little bit, you know, just give him a little bit, of, a little bit of that perspective that I felt that he was kind of missing through this whole process. I was able to get him on the phone. We had a 45 minute conversation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really good conversation. Really good conversation. One thing that was interesting about it. And, and, you know, it, as far as this stuff went, I feel like you heard me on a few things. I heard him on a few things. I mean, I, one point he made, he's like, look it, we're a small town. We have the school system. Like some towns, you know, they'll, they'll kind of group towns together and have like a larger school that, that the kids go to. My town, we have a small elementary school, we have a smaller middle school, and we have a tiny high school <laughs> because <laughs> I mentioned that shipyard population that comes through, whatever the demographics are, you end up with a lot of families coming through that have elementary school age kids. But by the time you get to high school, there aren't as many families with kids that are that age group. He's like, you know, we have the school system that's basically just on the brink of being able to support itself and to justify itself with the number of students we have here. Part of his concern with losing housing units and with taking away housing units that families can get into. And he's like, he's like, look at your unit, which, you know, th this house that we've now turned into a rental unit. He's like, that's a perfect house for a family to move into in this town like you guys did, you know, and that you've moved out of. Now that house isn't available as a housing unit for these young families that we have in town. It was interesting to hear that broader concern about the housing thing, that it's not just, again, I still think that the short-term rentals, they're not doing what he says, what he thinks they're doing as much as he thinks they're doing it. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> they're not taking away as many of these housing as he thinks. Yeah, but how are those, How is? I mean, just to a specific point, how are the schools funded? They're not funded based on students paying fees. They're funded on property taxes. Of course, of course. And you're still yeah. paying property taxes on that property. Like, what's he talking about? Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. But the point is that at some point, there's two sides to that. That's true. There's a funding piece of it. And we made that argument in the last episode, right? That, yeah, you're paying taxes for basically properties that aren't sending kids to school, where you don't have that at that cost of sending kids to school. But there's two sides of that. There is that cost, but there's also just like the number of students. It's like if you have a high school with, I don't know how many kids at the high school, but I think a graduating class at our high school is maybe like 50 kids, right? It's like you have a school that big. It's like, well... Do you have a baseball team at that school? Do you have a, a football team? You know, do you have a volleyball team? Do you have a field hockey team? <laughs> you know, it's like of those 50 kids in that graduating class, are you able to put a baseball team on the field? 
Well, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's beyond just that financial thing. It's about the viability of the school itself as a standalone institution. Yeah. And again, you know, of course, we can make arguments against public school and all the stuff that we do. But things as it being things as they are, I thought that was an interesting argument about the housing concern that he brought up. And so, anyways, I was glad to have had that conversation with him. I feel like I gave him some perspective on, as I said, our situation about like renting our permanent residents on weekends, like two renters who were coming in, you know, to this heavy metal band that came in the one weekend, yeah. like I talked about in the last episode. So it was a good conversation. But beyond that, some other stuff he's talking about, he's like, look it, he's like, we're going to go into this, this public hearing, the public town council meeting, and we're, we have this vote. And then the next thing we have to talk about is the parking on this street right here, like this one street in town that's just been all this whole uproar in this downtown area about the parking on this street. And they just change it and people all up in arms. He's like, we got to talk about that. He's like, and then like the town just did this reassessment, like tax reassessment of all the properties, which they only do like every eight years, <laughs> I guess. So of course, now everybody's all up in arms about their tax valuation on their property. Because like we now own two properties in town. Our properties went up, like one of them went up like 80%. Whoa. The other one up like 60%. You mean the property value or the tax amount or is it all proportional? So what the town said, uh, I forget the exact numbers. I think our valuations went up that much, but our taxes... We're like not far behind that. What the town said, they're like, the way that works is basically, you know, you have one pot, right? You got to fund that pot. And then you divide it up by people based on their property value. It's not that the town is getting more money out of this whole thing. It's just that some people are paying more money than they used to. And other people are paying less money than they used to. So he's like, he's like, yeah, on average, valuations didn't go up by more than 25%. It's like, well, yeah, but like in this neighborhood, they went up 80%. And like, yeah, that one out at the edge of town by the highway. Like, yeah, that probably only went up 5%, right? <laughs> but like, there's a lot of people who are hit hard by this reassessment when we happen to be two of them you know, with our two properties. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. But what I got from him, it's like, he didn't say this, but it's like, this isn't like top on his mind right now, right? Like the short-term rental issue. That for me, I've been like obsessing over this. I mean, you know, all the data analysis, everything I did for the last five months, right? This has been my obsession. For him, it's like, oh, it's something I have to talk about one more time on Monday, right? Anyway, so I mean, doesn't that just show you how inefficient this whole system is of trying to come up with these ordinances? And, you know, when you figure so this sort of process you have and this is like you said, this is just a small town. So this is where you're supposed to be able to make your voice heard and, you know, affect local politics, get involved in your community and all this stuff. And you see how hard it is for you to do this one small thing in your town when you consider that you've got I looked it up. There's something like 20,000 incorporated towns in the U.S., and you figure each one of those towns has their own sets of ordinances and local laws and a city council and all this stuff that goes through the same process. And think of how inefficient all of this is. Now, one, if you're making this sort of efficiency argument, then, you know, where some people might go with it is, well, well, then you got to kick it back, you know, kick some of these issues back up to the state level where it's more efficient because it's, you know, the one state making rules for everybody. Or, you know, or, or go above that to the federal level. But at the end of the day, there's got to be better ways to handle these things. When you consider that what the real damages that are happening here are, is what? Noise violations, street parking, like people parking on the street. What else is there? <laughs> right. Well, and then, and then the housing concerns. And then the housing concerns. But of course, the housing concerns, as we've said plenty of times before, are driven by other factors like the zoning. I hear what you're saying about this this inefficiency thing. But one thing I saw as my town started to put this ordinance together, one of the first things they did is they looked at other towns in the area, right? So they looked at some other towns up in Maine that have put certain regulations in place. 
the town manager, I think, had previously had some experience in Massachusetts. So she had some contacts down there that she was reaching out to and getting information about what other towns are doing in that area. There is almost, I'm not going to say it is, but it's kind of a parallel to what we would think of as like a common law type of process where they're not just, well, some of the stuff they are, but, but they're not entirely just inventing this stuff from whole cloth, right? They are looking around at what are the standards in other places. In some cases, there have been ordinances in place that have been shot down in the courts in certain towns, and they've paid attention to that and said, well, we can't really do this. That was part of the argument against a ban early on. So he kind of came out and said, you know, we can't really do a ban like that hasn't held up in, in other places because of A, B, and C or whatever. So it's not quite as just like throwing a dart at a dartboard, you know, and seeing what kind of ideas you come up with. Anyways, they had the town council meeting. The council we talked to did bring up a couple of the suggestions we had made. They were discussed. I think one or two of them they accepted. So for example, one was like, I think we had challenged the parking number. I don't think that passed, but I think they did allow tandem parking, which was a win because I think that would address a lot of properties, although it's still a stupid problem for these one and two bedroom properties. There was another thing about, I think it was like an, they had this requirement to have an emergency contact and there were some details about what does that mean to have somebody available by emergency contact. Anyway, so there was, there was some other minor little things like that that they improved on. There were a couple of other things that did not go through. And then for some reason, I guess they weren't able to vote on this. Oh, I, they had to, at that point, they were voting to put it to a public hearing, like a final public hearing, and then they would do the final vote. So they did that. They basically finalized the ordinance, said, okay, this is basically a done deal. Let's put it to a public hearing, and then we do the final vote on it. They scheduled the public hearing. The public hearing was later in March. The weekend before the public hearing was when the world lost its mind because of COVID. (laughs) They canceled the meeting. Everything shut down. Everybody freaked out. This was literally the weekend when people are like lining up at grocery stores to buy toilet paper, <laughs> yeah. right? And this meeting's supposed to be happening on Monday. So that all got put on essentially indefinite hold at that point because like they didn't even know how they were going to hold council meetings at that point. So there's all this momentum. This thing was finally getting done. Over the next couple of months, they had a couple of council meetings where they're basically just like going through the motions just to keep the town up and running through the COVID thing and like authorize certain responses to the COVID, whatever, and do that kind of stuff. So they weren't taking on any new issues, any new ordinances. You know, this was tabled at that point. Finally, there was like a Friday in May. We got a message through Airbnb, like from Airbnb.com that says, hey, by the way, there's a hearing in your town on Monday about a short-term rental ordinances, you know, <laughs> you should call in and let you know, what, let them know what you think. Jeez. And we're like, what the, f-? we've been talking to these people this whole time along. Like we've been on the phone with them and they finally, like all of a sudden, this was, this was like, like the first actual live town council meeting that they were kind of rebooting on. The first one that they were kicking off again. Oh, and they put this thing right back on the table with no note, at least like, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure if I was like on the town website, like the Wednesday before, I would have seen it come up on the agenda. <laughs> but so we find out, we find out the week before this thing's on a Monday. So of course we all called in. It was a Zoom thing where you could call in and read your comments. They were actually having people mail in comments that they would then read, which was actually probably a good thing because I think a lot of the people like on our mailing list probably wouldn't have gotten up and spoken had mailed in comments, which the town council got up and read through every one of them. Wow. That was probably actually to our benefit. Not only that, but nobody from the public came out and made a single complaint about any about any short-term rental units. 
And I should say that through this entire process, through all these workshops and everything, there wasn't a single negative public comment about short-term rentals that came out through any of these hearings or workshops or whatever, other than the very first accessory dwelling unit thing, which wasn't even about short-term rentals, but people got up. That's how we found out what some of these initial troublemakers were. There were like three people who got up in that. And as I said in our last podcast episode about this, these people had very legitimate concerns, like the wedding house, right? Yeah. But through the rest of the process, like we didn't hear boo from anybody else in the community about this. So we're thinking like, well, what's like, where's the fire? You know, like, what is the problem here? <laughs> and same thing with this final hearing. There wasn't a single negative comment from from anyone in the community about the ordinance, about the process, about any of this. Um, of course, you know, we hear stuff in direct conversations with people like, well, yeah, you know, people call me. They don't want to people don't want to stand up in a meeting and rat out their neighbor about stuff. But they call us when they have a problem and want us to deal with it. So we got to deal with it. But anyways, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of this public process, right? So little of this is, and this is like, you know, small town, everybody knows each other. It's like, like this, and this is a minor issue, right? So little of this is public through this whole process. Like the thing gets drafted behind closed doors. They have these workshops where there's not public input. Everything kind of comes down to this final public hearing. And at that point, it's a done deal. You know, (laughs) people get up and say their piece and then they vote on it. At that step, what are you hoping to do? You're just hoping to convince other people to vote against this thing? Is that like, are you... Who's your target audience there? Are you, are you trying to convince counselors at that point or are you trying to convince the public? <sighs> Here's the thing. I was, I mean, at this point, I'm like between a rock and a hard place because I'm like, man, every time they go back on this thing, it gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> so it's like as much as I want to keep fighting this, it's like this doesn't get better like from here forward, yeah. right? I mean, at this point, it's, it's just like a business license. You know, it's like you, you file a piece of paper, you pay 50 bucks. And for our properties, like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, there are some properties that are going to be in a hard spot with this because they don't have the parking spaces or whatever, and they're not going to be able to rent them out. They're going to be able to do short-term rental. Like they won't be able to get a license. And I'm like, that sucks. And I, like, I was trying to, to fight, you know, that I saw myself as like fighting for, for these people, right? Yeah. And I don't think people in town council, like, I think some did by the end because I've said it enough, but going in, like, they don't think that if I'm requiring somebody to have an extra parking spot for a short-term rental. They don't think through, well, what does that mean? How many parking spots do they have to have? Oh, they have to have three parking spaces. Oh, well, how many cars are actually going to be there? Oh, well, there's only going to be two cars there. Yeah. So. Um, That's one size fits all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm kind of like at a, between a rock and a hard place at this point where I'm like, I don't remember what I said in the final hearing, but I think I just tried to drive home a couple of these things that hadn't been addressed, like the parking spaces like the lack of clarity on the violations and there was you know a couple of like details like that i'm like look guys like can we just like clear up these few things before you pass it so we all get up we say our piece they vote on it and it goes through i don't remember if they made any last minute changes it might have been one or two little things but it passed and so now we have this licensure ordinance on the books my wife and i have applied for three short-term rental licenses <laughs> one for our old house one for our current house, and one for the new accessory dwelling unit in the basement. And the reason that we just finished the accessory dwelling unit in the basement is that we, we wanted to get a license before the end of the year. And we, I mean, this is a project we were going to do by ourselves, right, and get it done over like the next year. But because this thing was coming down the pipe, we're like, we got to get this thing done so we can get the license. Otherwise, it's a crapshoot of whether or not we'll be able to get, get a license for this place over the next year. And so we did. So we got contractors in. You know, we paid a lot more for the, the unit than we would have if we'd just done it ourselves. But we got it done. It was literally like the week before Christmas. We got the ADU permit for it. 
And, you know, the code enforcement, they were working with Asana. They knew we were trying to get it done and they, they were helpful. I will say that. So we got it done. But so, so we got three licenses. One of our friends has two licenses. Another friend has a couple licenses just because they have, we have a couple of friends who have like multiple units on a property or multiple different ways that they rent out, whatever. So we found out when we got our license, we asked the code officer, we're like, so, you know, here we are at the end of the year. It's like, how many, how many licenses have you guys issued? He's like, we've issued 60. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now, oh, this was one change they made at the end. Remember that, that 5% limit or the 5% cap on the, the increase in the number of licenses per year? Mm-hmm. They did generously raise that to 8%. Oh, <laughs> okay. So now, now that we have 60 licenses in town, next year, there will be an additional four licenses that they're going to issue to people. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes because the whole thing with this and we made this argument ad nauseum in the last episode, but it's, you know, the whole idea is that they want to find out where these units are, right? They want to just know where these units are. So if an issue comes up, they can address it and they can, you know, issue citations or whatever appropriately. Well, now you have this license cap in place where you're not allowing people to get licenses to do a short-term rental. So if somebody wants to do it, they're just going to do it and you're not going to know about it just like you wouldn't have known about it before, <laughs> You know, I mean, they're just going to like, people are just going to roll the dice and like, are you going to find out about it? Probably not. I mean, apparently they're working with, you know, one of these agencies that will go through and scrape the listings and try to find people who are listing their unit without a license. All right. So now they're going to spend resources enforcing this thing. Exactly. So, oh God. And again, I could have, and I, I, I thought about it at one point. I had the list of all the short-term rental listings in my town, right? At one point I'm like, man, do I like put that on the table like because I, I have not made the public i haven't even shared it with like our friends who were involved in this discussion with like we had a friend who helped us like address envelopes we made her like come to our house like with the list in hand <laughs> eyes only <laughs> fill out yeah, exactly <laughs> fill out right up right out the envelopes and then leave without taking a copy i'm like i am not putting this list in the hands of of anybody like i don't trust anybody what you should have done is is written to each of those uh airbnb owners and said get a license for each bedroom in your house you know, that you can rent them each out separately. <laughs> just it, to... It's per dwelling unit. It's per dwelling unit is where the town did it. Uh, okay. yeah, I, have, I don't know if I said that before, but so that, yeah, apparently they're, they're going to be checking up on these things now, but so here's how it's going to go. It's like somebody wants to do a short-term rental and it's like, when people do this, it's like, they try it out, right? Like you don't just go, you don't just like jump whole hog into, it's like, man, I got this property. It's like, we're not going up that much. It's like, why don't we try to rent it out a couple weekends and like, see if we can get a renter in. That's how we did when we first started doing it. It's like, was our primary residence. We're like, we spent a lot of time at my parents' house in the summer. It's like, let's see if we can get people in a couple weekends. And I don't know, because we, you know, as I said, we did this a lot when, when we were traveling. It works. Let's try it out. And we did. And then that picked up from there. And now it's like, it's like, wow, we can really like make something out of this. And that's what people are going to do. And they're not going to know about this licensure requirement. So they're going to do it. And then a few people are going to get burned on it. They're not going to find people right off the bat. They'll go and be like, hey, we noticed that you're doing the short-term rental. Yeah. You need to get a license. But oh, by the way, there aren't any more. So get on the waiting list. <laughs> now they have a waiting list, okay? So now it's like, let's say they get eight people in a year, right? Yeah. Only four licenses going out. Four people get a license. Four people go on the waiting list. Now those people are waiting till the next year. Now they get a license. Now you've got eight more people the next year who want a license. Yeah. Now they're on the waiting list for the following year. Now there are no more licenses available. And if you have any more than that, this, you know, the four people per year it's going to be so hard to get a license because it's all going to be people who just sit on the waiting list, you know, as this thing goes along. Yeah. I should say the town, they said they're going to reevaluate it after, I think, two years or something of this. So it'll be interesting to see at that time how this all goes. 
And I wonder even if they'll do something, if they do see it started to be a problem where a lot of people are applying and they don't have the licenses, I wonder if they'll bring it up again. Because it would be a simple thing for the town to just kind of raise that number a bit. Yeah. And once they see what kind of properties are applying and be like, look, these places are not throwing like these huge parties, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. But for, at this point, it's like, I'm kind of like, I'm out. Like, I'm done. Like, we, we did, you know, we got our licenses. Like, I'm, I'm fine. You've got your protected government granted privilege. Exactly. I'm the special interest, <laughs> right? I have my monopoly privilege, right? They just granted a mon- basically a monopoly to all of the pre-existing short-term rental hosts who had these properties and who've been doing this. So that's exactly how this stuff happens. Yep. And I didn't ask for it. I don't want that. I was fighting for anybody to get one of these. I want more, I want more short-term rental hosts in my town. Yeah. Like, I want this to be this community and I want it to be something that people are familiar with and are comfortable with in the community but anyways you know what we're fine so it's like i fought my fight you know i did what i could and i'm throwing my hands up like i'm not getting involved in this again yeah i mean i guess I, i'm sure I, i'd say that I'm, I'm sure i will if this comes up again i like i won't be able to keep my mouth shut but <laughs> but man you just get so but i mean they said like i i honestly put i put hours uh, days into and i didn't have to but you know that's just how my brain works <laughs> all this analysis i did of this all the arguments I put in, I mean, you know, the two-hour episode we did on it, all the, the research I did for that, the research I did with the Tom Woods interview, you know, it's like, I put all this time into this. And like, that's what you have to do to be engaged in these processes and to make some kind of argument where you're just fighting against the status quo, fighting against, well, this isn't normal, fighting against, I don't know what this is. And I don't, you know, and I don't know if I like it, you yeah, know, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. The worst thing to a normie is to be called weird. Ugh, right? Is this a political process? I don't know. I guess so. Like, I mean, who would want to do this? Like, why would anybody, unless they're coming after your bread and butter? Like I said, nobody's from the public stood up. And, and even like even people who, I know there are people in my town who have had problems with their neighbors. None of them stood up. Like, they can't be bothered right. with this, you know? They don't care. Like, I mean, in their defense, I'm sure that they assume that the, the town councilors are doing something about it. And I think they think that they have done something about it. And the reality is that... It, this isn't going to do any. This isn't going to stop the, the nuisance properties. Like no. a, that seven bedroom house could still have 14 people on the property. They can go make all the noise they want. The town has no. They, what are they going to cite them for? They've already tried to give them a noise violation. They can't because they can't take a baseline reading on the decibel <laughs> level. This doesn't change anything. They still can't. They still have nothing to, to hold these people to. Yeah. They still have no violations that they can charge these people with. But three violations and, and you're out. It's like. I don't know. I mean, I don't believe me. I'm not. I'm not saying that because it's like I'm sure they'll find things that they can <laughs> that they can charge people with. But at the end of the day, it's like, oh, the town's done something now, but they haven't solved the problem. They haven't no. even addressed the fundamental problem. That house with seven bedrooms, they can still have twenty cars parked there. There's nothing in there to stop them from having twenty cars parked in their front lawn. There's nothing to stop them from having fourteen people there. There's nothing to stop them from having a party out front. Yeah. I mean, or having a party every weekend. Like none of this changes any of that. But what it does do is it takes the small units and it makes it really burdensome for the people who actually are using this to supplement their income, who actually are using this to be able to afford their home. One thing that came out during the process of this was that I think it was the Federal Housing Administration put out some kind of directive that basically says allowing short-term rental is good for housing affordability for all the reasons we've discussed. Mm. The feds are on board with this. They're actually arguing for this for that reason. But that's the small units, which are the ones that this ordinance is now making really problematic. Again, all of that said, I can't really complain. It could have been a lot worse. A lot of other towns with bans and stuff have been a lot worse. A lot of towns have things like owner occupancy requirements, which are essentially bans for things like vacation homes. 
And so this was, I think the town, you know, I think they, they had a pretty even handed approach to this. There are some things in there that I wish weren't in there. They did make some improvements through the process. Some of it was one step forward, two steps back, but <laughs> that's the sausage being made. So what do you think the key takeaways are from this whole saga? <laughs> well, for one thing, it's kind of what we were just talking about. It's just the difficulty of the political process, the difficulty of public participation in that process and, and public decision-making in this kind of a, of a public forum. The way I've thought about it, it's like nothing happens forever and then everything happens all at once. <laughs> you know, we had these initial discussions and then things kind of moved along for a while and then all of a sudden it's like finalized and it's a challenging thing to stay on top of. And I think for somebody who's not as invested in this subject matter as we were, it would be really hard to participate in that kind of a process. And as I said, the difficulty of having some things happen in a public forum, some things happen behind closed doors. And, you know, I, I, of course, that, that's the way it has to happen. I don't think you can literally sit down and like draft a piece of legislation in the midst of a public forum. Well, it sounds like it wouldn't matter even if you did. Right. I mean, from the town's perspective, when they do these workshops, their goal there is to really build consensus among the council so that when they do go to a public hearing, at least they know where everybody stands on their side of it, and they try to resolve as much as they can before they bring it to the public. So again, there are reasons for the way things happen the way they do. But for people who see government as this direct democracy kind of process, you know, I mean, it really can't be that. Of course, there are opportunities for public input. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to put this thing down on paper, and a handful of people have to make decisions about it. A broader concern that I've been thinking more about over, especially over this past year, more generally, like the difficulty of, of rational discourse, you know, and of having some kind of rational discourse result in some kind of positive public decision making. I try to bring a lot of arguments to the table up front. I tried to bring this data analysis towards the end of the process that I thought would answer some of their questions and concerns. But at the end of the day, it's like by doing that, you know, when I, when I give them a 20 page write up, which we turned into a two hour podcast. It's like, that's a lot of, I'm asking them, if I'm asking them to sit down and read through and digest and understand all of that, like that's a lot to ask. And same thing with this data analysis. It's like, how meaningful is it for someone to sit and look at a bunch of statistics and understand something from that that's going to change the way that they feel about something? Yeah, feelings don't care about your facts. <laughs> Ultimately, I think that these town councilors see themselves as in a kind of a mediator role where they're hearing from some constituents who are having these problems. They're hearing from people like us who are going to be affected by any kind of regulation they put together. And I think a good outcome for them is, well, okay, here's a little bit for you. Here's a little bit for you. You know, it's like cutting the baby in half or whatever that saying is. But I mean, the thing is that they're, you know, they're living in the town too. They're not necessarily impartial. Like you said, you know, the one guy, you know, had this concern that there were six Airbnbs near his house or whatever. No, and I don't expect them to be impartial. I mean, you know, nobody is. But there should be some rationale behind whatever side you're taking. And of course, you know, we, we talk about this. These people do have, they do have rationales for it. But my perspective was, you know, maybe this is sour grapes on my part, but my perspective was that I thought that I was answering some of the primary concerns that I heard people had about this, and it didn't really seem to move the needle for some of these people. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because these days it seems like there's a bit of an awakening happening within the broader libertarian movement 
that libertarians tend to be these people who are, you know, INTJ, hyper-rational people. You know, we all like the ideas of libertarianism because we've read all the books and we've followed the logic, you know, from the non-aggression principle all the way through to whatever implications that has for any given issue. But in reality, you know, people simply don't care. People do not care about rights. They certainly don't care about property rights. They don't care about freedom. They don't care about liberty, whatever that means. They've never even heard of consistency. What people care about is comfort, convenience, complacency, and conformity. Most people spend all of their life trying as hard as they can to be as boring as possible and just fit in with the crowd because they're so terrified of being called weird. These are the people that we call normies. I think there's a lot of people who I would call a normie that probably think of themselves as weird because, you know, they got a tattoo once or they uh, painted their hair pink at one point or something like that. You know, some sort of superficial sign of nonconformity. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, someone can go completely goth and you're still sort of conforming to the whole goth aesthetic. You know, you're, not, you're still not really these days. That's big enough. Like if, if you're doing that back in the 80s, OK, that was probably a bit wild. But, you know, these days it's just like you're just joining another club. You know, <laughs> hey, man, don't knock my style. <laughs> so if people value, you know, everyone has all these slogans about, you know, think for yourself, be a free spirit, all this bullshit. And no one actually does it because it threatens their convenience, conformity and comfort. They're so terrified of being thought of as weird. Someone call you weird recently or <laughs> someone will post something, you know, where it's like they do some goofy thing like, oh, I'm so weird, you know, <laughs> but it's like, no, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> they say, this is weird. And just, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm being, you, so... you want to see weird? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Let me see where it, have a listen to this episode from Timeline Earth. Timeline Earth. This is an issue that's kind of been bugging me a lot lately with this. I call it almost aggressive normiism, where people are so oblivious that there could be other ways to think out there that it's not that they're actually going out and forcing people to conform or anything like that, but it's just a constant repeating of boring normie slogans as if they're like radicals right as if it's a radical statement yeah <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being a normie if you're gonna just keep to yourself and live your boring normie life without inflicting your banality on everybody else but these are the kind of people that run for city council because that's <laughs> that's the best thing a normie can do that's what you told all through school is that that's the way you improve your community is by sitting on that city council and you know writing ordinances yeah, and, and I think we're getting off from this topic in my town a bit, which which is our intent here. But just to be clear, like, you know, I think the counselors in my town, they're not there to moderate people's behavior and try to, I don't really see that attitude from them. I see them as feeling like they want to try to represent people's interests. And as I said, I think you used the word mediator before, you know, I think they see themselves as taking the responsibility to make the hard decisions that will help everybody in town to get along with each other. We just had this other big issue about dogs in, in some of the parks in town where people want dogs on leashes, or I think the dog is supposed to be on leashes, and now they're going to start enforcing that because, you know, because people aren't picking up the dog crap and, you know, and strange dogs will run up to people. So that's a lot of, believe me, that became a much more of a hot button issue than the uh, short term rentals oh, yeah, did. You, you, don't, you don't want to mess with dog people. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's where, at least at, at the size of town that I'm at, that's the role that these people see themselves taking. I want to respond to one thing you said. You mentioned that nobody cares about property rights. One thing that was interesting in this process, which I didn't expect, 
is that, of course, when I got up there, I forget at what point this was in the discussion. But at one point, I got up there and like my opening salvo was this whole piece about property rights, right? The, the argument we've made before that this is a longstanding property right. People have been doing this for years. And licensure was essentially a taking of that property right. And then I went on from there to more detailed stuff. But afterwards, I was talking to one of the other hosts and he's like, man, I'm a liberal, but man, property rights. Like, yeah, you're right, man. This is a property right. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that does have some resonance with people. I mean, the thing is, it's like everybody's a libertarian when the gun's pointed at them, right? Yeah. But I thought that was a, an interesting reaction that I didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. And I'd agree with a lot of what you just said. It's not just normieism. It's just about the difficulty of changing anybody's mind about anything. I mean, you think about what would it take for somebody to change your mind about something you deeply believe like right let's like some of our libertarian ideas right a rational argument <laughs> <laughs> it would take a little bit but it wouldn't just be that because somebody came up with something like you'd find a few holes you could poke in it and you'd move on right i mean yeah. this is what and this is what everybody does right yeah confirmation bias you see like like ancoms or something criticizing anarcho-capitalists and it's like and they pick like the three worst things that murray rothbard ever said and that's like QED for them that they've just smashed the entire edifice of, of anarcho-capitalism. And ANCAPs, of course, do the same thing to ANCOMs. Where we point to the millions of dead people that they've left in their wake. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, you said ANCOMs, not real comms. At the end of the day, uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Like, I, I think it's okay to have lots of different people with lots of different ideas. And even to have them being combative within the realm of, of public discourse, there doesn't have to be a process where, you know, you say something and I say something else and then we talk about it. And then by the end of our discussion, we agree on it. Like that doesn't have to happen in order to move ideas along. I don't mind public discourse being a lot messier. And I guess part of that is that rational discourse just becomes one form of rhetoric that can potentially be persuasive. If not to the person you're talking to, then at least you, I mean, the great thing about Twitter is like you get in a spat with somebody and you don't change that person's mind, but maybe two or three other people see your tweets and then it opens them up to a line of thinking that they'll then explore. Yeah, but the issue here is that some sort of legislative outcome is going to result from these discussions with these city councils. So sure, that's going to be messy. But the problem is that you've got this one size fits all set of rules that everyone has to follow. And it's not simple enough to be fair to everyone on a basis of something like the non-aggression principle, where it's really just about preventing damages to others. Yeah, that's true. And, and of course, that's you know our whole problem with, <laughs> with having government take on more and more responsibility in creating these statutory laws and in having a monopoly on adjudication of these laws. At one point in this whole discussion, it occurred to me that this is like one of the oldest types of disputes you know, in, in the history of law. So I went and looked up in Maine civil law, what happens if you have a nuisance? How do you resolve that? And there's this whole detailed set of laws and standards by which uh, something like a noise violation can be adjudicated within a civil court. And as I'm reading through it, I'm like, man, this is like, this is really good. Like if I were as a libertarian, if I'm sitting down and writing how I think two people should resolve a nuisance complaint, a noise related nuisance, there's not much I would do differently than what's spelled out in the civil law here in the state of Maine. So I thought I was onto something here. So in one of these discussions, I brought that up and I said, you know, if nuisances are the problem here, we have a pretty robust civil law where people can take their neighbor to court and try to adjudicate these things. 
And it's set up so that it can take into account like some of the subjectivity and the difficulty of documenting noise disturbances and, and all that stuff that we've talked about. It's set up pretty well for that. And so my argument was, we don't need this town-wide regulation to try to stop these nuisances. We can just point out that these processes are in place and you know let people take advantage of them. And later on, I was having a discussion with somebody on the town side of the table. And I thought it was an interesting point, but I didn't think it would carry that much water. I just wanted to get people thinking of different ways of how to resolve this nuisance issue. And this person I was talking to brought that up and they said, you know, of all the things you said, like that one you said about the civil cases, they said that was a lead balloon. <laughs> <laughs> they said that that will never work. They say we can't expect people to go and be suing their neighbors. That's an expensive process. It takes so much time. Like basically saying the civil courts don't work, <laughs> right? Yeah. That civil law and civil justice doesn't work other than maybe for, you know, wealthy people can afford it for big cases. And I heard that and it kind of hit me like a gut punch and I didn't really know why at first. And as I was thinking about it afterwards, I realized that it was because it was absolutely 100% correct, <laughs> right? So he's changed your mind with facts. <laughs> the civil justice system is completely inaccessible to, I mean, to probably, you know, at least 75, 80, 90% of people, especially for these smaller types of disputes. Because you think of what it takes to adjudicate these things. I mean, it's, there are certain standards of evidence. Obviously, you have to get lawyers involved who, who know what the process is and who can present it in the right way within the court. So you're paying lawyers, you're trying to document these disturbances, you're fighting with your neighbor the whole time this process is going on. And at the end of the day, it's like for these noise disturbances, you don't have a lot to show for damages, like in terms of how much it's actually hurt you, like damage you or damage your property or your property value. In terms of, you know, the actual dollar amount, like it probably just doesn't even justify the cost that it would take to actually take somebody to court for this. And I think the reason that I found that so disheartening is that when we talk about a more libertarian or especially an anarchic legal system, it depends pretty heavily on this kind of civil adjudication where one person has a problem with somebody else. And if it's some property rights violation, if it's a nuisance, if it's theft, if it's injury, in an anarchic world, we see these things being resolved through civil court proceedings between those individuals. And then, of course, that all starts to build a volume of common law that can be applied more similarly to statutory law. But even though part of the problem here is that we have this monopoly justice system, if you want to get something resolved, you got to go to the state courts, and they have all the problems and costs and inefficiencies of any other government bureaucracy and any other monopoly that has no incentive to serve the people who are taking advantage of its services. But I don't know that that changes a whole lot when you go to more of an anarcho-capitalist type of justice system where you have competing courts and you have competing enforcement agencies I mean, you know, we have this now. We have arbitrators, you have mediators. There are different ways to resolve disputes. And this is something that's very common in, in construction, you know, in resolving disputes that, that arise from a construction contract. But by and large, I've kind of been less optimistic about the prospects for civil law and common law being sufficient to resolve these kind of minor disputes that don't justify a court case. Yeah, but if you look at the way things are now, people expect that there's some sort of noise regulations in place or whatever that are there to punish the offending party. So if their neighbor's making noise, they expect that they can call the cops, the cops will come into the house and issue that guy a fine or something like that. In an anarchic world where we didn't have this legislation, 
I see it as kind of the similar argument that we make about public and private schools, where there's a bit of a crowding out effect. We have these public schools that crowd out the market for any low-cost schooling. So the only private schools you get are high-cost private schools, right? So the way I'm seeing it is that the legislation and the city cops and all that stuff are effectively doing the same thing that public schools are doing, where they're cutting out the bottom of that market for these adjudication systems. And let's not forget how much accreditation and schooling and all this stuff that judges have to go through to become a judge in the society we're talking about. You know, you could just have the wise man in the neighborhood or whatever, the one guy in the neighborhood who everyone trusts, you know, you go to him and he makes the call. There could be much more informal processes that could emerge to fulfill this bottom end of the civil adjudication market. But fair enough, it's still going to be a, a fairly complex process, I would think, you know, that, that you still need to have some level of evidence. But, you know, the thing is, is, again, when you've got laws on the books that are going to be enforced a certain way, the standard of evidence for that stuff is going to be higher than it would be for this sort of anarchic civil common law process. Because just like we've seen, there are these noise restrictions in place, but they can't enforce them because they can't even measure the baseline noise level at that house, right? And so in a civil court, you could go to the judge and say, hey, look, this guy's having parties at 10 p.m. at night. They're playing Earth, Wind, and Fire. And the judge says, yes, and what's the problem? <laughs> the judge says, oh, nice. Yow. <laughs> <laughs> the judge doesn't need to know, you know how loud that is. It's like if, if you've got a band playing on your back lawn at 10 p.m. at night, it's pretty obvious to any reasonable judge that that's going to be too loud for the neighbors. And so, you know, unless the offending party is going to somehow claim that, no, that band wasn't playing on my lawn at 10 p.m., the judge can make a pretty good call there that there's probably some damages due. And again, the damages could be proportionate to the level of evidence that's been presented. I mean, if you look at you know, Judge Judy, this is, Judge Judy is pretty much the model for what we're talking about here, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's small claims court. Right? Small claims court, yeah. And the other thing is that you know, the offending party, you know, it's expensive to them to defend themselves for one of these sort of claims, right? So if they're repeat offending and their neighbors are going to take them to court every time they throw a party, then at some point, it's going to become a lot more expensive to them than it is to their neighbors, you know, because if the neighbors are clever. What they can do is like, you know, this guy is going to take him to court this week. That guy's going to take him to court the next week. You know, so they can kind of spread out the burden of that. But the one guy is, is going to have to, even if, it, if he's only paying his lawyer fees or, or the court fees or whatever, after a while, it's a big cost on him. So I think the point they've made is relevant. I do agree that it is certainly less efficient to operate in a purely common law system like that, you know, where it's a lot easier for everyone just to look at some laws on the books and say, oh, well, okay, I can do this, I can't do that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what can you enforce? And as we've seen, there's certain nuisances that the town can't enforce. That's partly because they have such a high standard of evidence, because they have these kind of set penalties that, you know, you have to have a reasonable standard of evidence if you're going to apply that penalty to it. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword for, you know, when the town takes this on. Part of what I got from this discussion was that I think the town sees it as their responsibility to create the law and to create the means of adjudication outside of the civil courts. So in other words, if there's some dispute in town, that's where you get the reaction, well, you know, there ought to be a law, you know, that the town needs to do something at the level where they can enforce it with their police rather than expecting that people will resolve disputes, particularly property disputes, among themselves. 
In fact, I think one of these problem houses was actually on a private road. <laughs> this was a, you know, a development where there was a private road that all the properties shared around it. Um, so it's like the town kind of had no business being in there and dealing with it. But again, they see that these are citizens of the town. And if two of these citizens have a problem with each other, then we as a town need to find a way to resolve that. So the problem you get, I hear what you're saying about standards of evidence, but that cuts both ways. Part of the problem is that these civil cases, you do have a pretty high standard of evidence. And as I said, as I was reading through it, I think it's a pretty reasonable standard of evidence. But there are challenges with a plaintiff coming in and being able to provide all of that evidence. So then the town says, well, you know, we need to provide a simpler process. We need to provide something that's easier to enforce, that's, you know, more cut and dry, and that's clearer to everybody involved, you know, where those boundaries are between right and wrong. And so in doing that, I mean, one thing that they do, you know, what they do in this case is they kind of give up on regulating the noise thing, right? <laughs> As I said, this new regulation doesn't change anything about the noise ordinance and the, their ability to cite people for noise violations. But what they end up doing is they say, well, we can't really effectively regulate that. We can't regulate the cause. So we're going to regulate this proximate cause instead, you know, the thing that causes the cause, Yeah. which in their mind, Airbnbs are one of them. They say, well, we haven't figured out an effective way to keep this neighbor from creating a nuisance for that neighbor, but we can stop that neighbor from doing this thing, which we think is the thing that's creating the nuisance for the other neighbor. So that's why you get into this case we're in, where they end up regulating and in a sense prohibiting something that doesn't need to be prohibited, something that isn't itself a problem. The fact that that can increase the risk of having you know, these nuisances yeah, I mean, it's something to be looked at and considered. But at the end of the day, both the town ordinances and the civil courts are failing to adjudicate the actual problem, which is these nuisances. So then the town kind of casts a wider net to say, what else can we stop to try to stop these three houses that have been problematic? <laughs> and the problem when you do that is then you start punishing a lot of people who haven't done anything wrong, who haven't had any noise violations. And as we said, who are on the other side of the coin providing a lot of benefits to the community. Yeah. So it's a bit like the old saying, you know, would you rather convict one innocent man or let a hundred guilty men walk free? Yeah. That the town has no problem convicting the innocent men. The town would rather convict a hundred innocent men than let one guilty man walk free. Yeah. So because they have these high standards of evidence where they can't actually enforce the thing, you know, they end up just creating this dragnet that ropes in all these innocent people. Right. It's significantly lowering standards of evidence for everybody else, you know, under this regulation. Yeah. It's the opposite of being presumed innocent until proven guilty. Right. It's your presumed guilty, the end, you know, this not yeah. going to give you a chance to prove yourself innocent. Exactly. <laughs> So as I said, at the end of the day, I was glad that I and the other short-term rental hosts in town were able to participate to the extent that we did in this process. I think the town certainly thought that they gave us a fair hearing, and the resulting ordinance certainly is a lot more reasonable than what I've seen in a lot of other places. But that said, there's still just like stupid problems <laughs> with the ordinance and unnecessary things, and things that just get put in there where we're being held to a standard that nobody else is, you know whether it's for nuisances or whether it's for, you know, taking housing units off the market. If they want to put more housing units on the market, they should issue licenses for vacation homes, not short-term rentals. At least short-term rentals are occupied. People have vacation homes here that sit empty half the year. 
but I'm not holding my breath for the town to come out with some prohibition on vacation homes in my town. I don't know, that might be the uh, spark of rebellion that you need. (laughs) For me, this was a really eye-opening process to go through in my town, and one I hope I don't have to repeat anytime soon. So when are you running for city council? (laughs) Oh, believe me, I think whatever political capital I had in this town, I just spent all of it. Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. I wasn't invited back. Try to come up with a reason why you wouldn't be invited back. Because I have no interest in the topic. <laughs> I share that in common with our audience. <laughs> but this is our niche. <laughs> our whole podcast is a niche. <laughs> well, look, the little piece of hair that's growing out of the pimple at the end of the long tail. Let me do a couple takes on the yow. Ready? <laughs> yow. 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 <laughs> yow. So is, hey. your, do you, is your tenant right now hearing you do all this? Down below you? Oh, probably. Yeah, it's probably shut up. Yeah. <laughs> a one-bedroom unit is only allowed to rent to two guests, but they're required to have two, two. <laughs> um. <laughs> but hold on. Let me, let me do it. Let me do it again. But they're required to have. Say it with me. Three I parking. Was, I wasn't really listening. What? <laughs> but they're required to have how many? One, two. Who? Three. I'm going to say like a thanks to Tom to having me back on. and uh, Oh, sure. Yeah. I forgot we started this episode with that <laughs> entire other episode of a yeah. podcast. Yeah, no, but it, it'd be funnier. It would be funnier at the end. You know? Oh, you got to have it at the beginning. You got to have that at the beginning. <laughs> Tom would say we have a unique and affordable podcast. Yeah, Don't yeah, waste yeah. listen to three hours of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From now on, like whatever we, whatever we say something just completely stupid and like banal and <laughs> trivial <laughs> the stinger of that get it on a soundboard stinger, yeah. I mean I have some appreciation for the guy next door who doesn't want to be listening to you know Earth Wind and Fire until 11 o'clock at night from some band playing on the property next door yow So uh, I think you have a really unique and important podcast.